Welcome to This Is Hardcore Podcast, or welcome back if you have listened to some or any of our episodes. Starting us off tonight, once again, MH Chaos from Chicago, this time Take Your Crown. In the beginning of this year, I had went to Florida for FYA Fest in Tampa and got to see these guys for the first time, and there was no other band that's out today currently out of the younger crop that I thought would be better to serve us kicking this one in than these guys speaking to Kevin Castle, Kevin Castle Heights, Kevin Scadato today. And I'm absolutely thrilled. And in hindsight, it was just probably the quickest conversation I think we had. And, This episode currently is our longest one to date, but Kevin is absolutely the master of the gift of gab, as he says. Kevin, as a promoter, fostered so many bands, not only New York bands, all up and down the East Coast and quite a few other bands as well that would travel in. And the legacy at Castle Heights stands today, and it's definitely something that the internet in the early 2000s into now have really propped up and maybe fantasized some aspects that weren't really as prevalent as people imagine them to be. And Kevin fills in a lot of the cracks and gets into the real details about really what was going on and his perspective and his ability to curate and build a, a family and a scene at a small room in Queens, New York. And I really appreciate the time and emotion that he put into this one. It's one of my all-time favorites already. So I hope you guys enjoy. Please, as I always say, at any point in the time, you can stop this. If it's a little long, take it in stride. It's going to be a long one. I don't want you guys to miss out because there's so many amazing stories and just so much wisdom and information for promoters and just band people direct from someone who is absolutely a master at promoting and networking and just an all around great guy. All right, jump right in. All right. I'm talking to Kevin Scadato, uh, the person who brought us Castle Heights, one of the most legendary New York hardcore venues and something that, touched us as a younger Philadelphia band and trying to find a place to play. Kevin opened up his arms to punishment and quite a few bands from out of town as well. So it wasn't just New York hardcore exclusive. So Kevin, thank you for coming on. Oh, thanks Joe, man. I'm happy to be here. Glad to do it. A lot of people were exposed to Castle Heights after the fact. And I think it's one of the kind of, I guess, uh, what would you say a uh, blessing in disguise, but unfortunate for so many of the awesome bands that took place. But I, I wanted to kind of start you off at the very beginning. Cause I know you have multiple brothers in hardcore and I would really like to see how, how you came into this mix in, in the very beginning, like start me off in the Scadato family home and what kind of music you guys were listening to and which one of the brothers around hardcore first. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, 
my brothers have always got to tell the story. It's probably my first time to tell the story, at least on, on a hardcore podcast. But I was uh, definitely more of a rock guy. I was I always say I was more uh, black crows than black flag for me. Uh, so but my brothers weren't the hardcore. I mean, we were all living together in the same house back then. Obviously, we were younger in our in our teens. Uh, we're two to three years apart, each one of us from the oldest. So except Mark is about uh, 13, 14 years younger than my oldest brother, Joe. So there's Mark, who's from in shutdown. He's the youngest. Mike is the second. Mike is an inhuman and the, now the last stand. Uh, then there's John. John used to sing for Lament and a bunch of other stuff. He was affiliated with Maximum Penalty and stuff like that. Uh, Joe is my oldest brother. Joe's never been in the scene. Joe's the the uh, scholastic guy and the banker and the professional guy since he's 18 years old. He's been a 30-year-old, the older guy. But he's always been a supporter of us. But Joe's never been in the scene before like that. Uh, and I've always been behind the scenes. I've been I was working for uh, fan clubs for record labels, uh, doing street team work. I mean, even for uh, bands like uh, Spread Eagle, Warrior Soul, Slaughter, Shotgun Messiah, Trickster, uh, all those bands from the, the later 80s. I mean, I worked street teams and did uh, I was I couldn't have been more into it than I was, but I was into it. You know, the music and the scene. I wasn't I've been straight edge my whole life. I wasn't in it for the drugs and the scene. It just wasn't for me. I, w I was there for, for the atmosphere. I like the music, but I'd always found hardcore to be pretty interesting. My brother Mike got into it first in, I believe, 87. Uh, then he formed Confusion, I believe, the following year, which is pretty legendary. Uh, but they call it now like a metalcore, deathcore, those terminologies they came up with that weren't around back then. Confusion was just kind of a hardcore metal band. Uh, hanging around with Marauder and bands like that. Old school, that's when Minus uh, used to sing for them. They were a young band, Sub-Zero. I know Lou for about 30 years. Uh, we go back with these guys. These guys was, were hanging out in my parents' living room when they were in town and, and coming down to Brooklyn. I mean, there was always hardcore people in my house and stuff, and it wasn't anything that, you know, I could be rocking a Warrant shirt and I'm going to hardcore shows. No one messed with me because everybody knew I was uh, there. I was the brother. I was there to support my brothers. And quite honestly, I went to uh, see Rat uh, at Lemoore's with the guys from Marauder and Dark Side. I mean, they were some of those guys were closet uh, commercial rock fans, by the way. Uh, they'll blow up the spot on anybody like Richie O'Brien from Dark Side. Uh, my brothers and we all went in groups, 15, 20 people going to shows together. Um, and anytime the Crazy Country Club had shows, which is talk about a legendary venue back in the late 80s, early 90s. It was a crazy country club in Brooklyn where Marauder played Patterns, all those bands, Confusion, uh, um, Step Aside, all those bands. Um, I would go and I'd go support my brothers in Seton. And, and I liked hardcore, but I wasn't a hardcore guy. I was a rock guy. Uh, but I liked hardcore. I liked the business aspect of it. And I'd already been working street team stuff for rock shows. And then one day and. I guess in 92, I was at the limelight um, seeing a show. I believe it was Widowmaker with D. Schneider. And I met uh, Frank there from Castle Heights. And we started having a conversation. He was opening up a bar in uh, Jackson Heights, a long-haired rock guy, too. And my friend Tom Pascal, who uh, worked for Metal Maniacs, who was a writer then, said he lives in Jackson Heights and he knows about this place. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's going to check it out. Maybe we can do shows there. I'm like, do shows? He's like, yeah, we can do some death metal, black metal. You know, you do, you know, rock. I know death metal and thrash. And your brothers are in hardcore. We can do a bunch of shows there. Maybe, you know, he's down to do shows. I didn't think much of it. So I went there for a meeting. It just opened December 92. It was a debaucherous place, man. When we got to Castle Heights, I mean, just a lot of weird shit going on in there. And I was like, I don't know, Tom. I don't know if this, you know, this is going to work. It's a real tough element over there. Jackson Heights was, was a hard hood back then. And uh, so I walked out of there, and, but Frank was cool. And he's like, yeah, we're going to put a stage in. And, and then, like a lot of things were going on. So 
Um, then in, I believe in 93, a few months later, we started up with some of our sh first shows. We started doing death metal shows, bands like Fallen Christ and Metastasis, Mistema, Asphyxiation, who all become, became legendary black and death metal bands here in New York. My first hardcore show, if memory serves, I believe it was uh, Sub-Zero was on one of my first shows, but we did shut down uh, very early in 94, Indecision. But in 93, I did mostly Queens bands like Terminal Confusion. I don't know if you know some of these names, Joe. Some of them are, are, are real New York institutions, but not, didn't really get out there uh, too much outside of the tri-state. It's a band called Terminal Confusion, a band called Born. Uh, but Sub-Zero, I had known Lou from my brothers from years before and got them to come down and play. Um, and again, it just kind of took off from there from 93 on. I mean, I just, uh, it just really took being a Scandato helped me, but I, I had always mingled and known dark side and all the guys in Marauder. I'd got Marauder to play Candiria. I had been friends with everybody because I had been going to crazy country club and supporting my brothers. So it wasn't just some, you know, jerk off from the rock scene trying to do shows. I kind of knew what I was doing. I knew the bands. I think they respected me for knowing hardcore that I wasn't just some, you know, dog and pony show, just trying to throw shows together. They knew that I kind of knew my stuff and I wasn't pretending to be in the hardcore scene. I was who I was. I was a long hair guy at the time, uh, but I knew hardcore. And it just kind of from there, it really took off. And it's it's unbelievable. I was looking back at my old books today, knowing that I was going to do this interview with you. And it was just somebody just we did hundreds of shows there and the bands that played just it's a who's who. I mean, we can get into all that stuff. But uh, I would say the first outside of Queens band that I booked there, it was uh, Sub-Zero. And then once Sub-Zero played there, everybody started to trickle in. Candiria, uh, Marauder, uh, all the bands from the, the old scene, the old guard back then. And uh, then we started doing out-of-state bands like uh, Only Living Witness. Uh, shout out to my friend Craig, who's in Agnostic Front now for many years. Craig Silverman, who I know many, many years. We would do, we did uh, Sam Black Church. Remember them, Joe, from back in the day? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did Sam Tree, remember Tree? Um, we did uh, just a bunch of bands from out of state. And it just, again, I just started snowballing and I started using my contacts at labels that I had done street team work for, getting bands who were getting signed, smaller bands, metal bands, thrash bands, hardcore bands. And again, we just started bringing them into Queens. And no, that was like Jackson Heights, Queens, there's a scene. I was like, well, we're trying to make one. And it, it just took off from there. Even meeting you, I was always open to bringing out-of-state bands into Castle Heights. It was, uh, it went, and it went pretty well because, as you you saw, the once you got in good with the Queens guys and you made some friends, the next time you would come back, it would just get better and better for an out-of-state band. You know, it wasn't like everybody's outside, nobody's watching you. Sometimes it was a little rough for certain bands, but most times Jersey and Philly bands and Boston bands always excelled at Castle Heights. If you were from the Northeast or the East Coast or the Tri-State, you would pretty much be welcome it wasn't that we weren't welcoming to like west coast or cali bands but it just seemed there was like a kind of a connection and also the fact that we used to do trade embargoes with people back then we did show trades hey can you hook up this band i'll get you this band i did that with the dudes in connecticut that's how i met jamie haybreed before i was even booking haybreed i was working jay voice of reason uh who was working for jamie's label back then so many years ago ted etall who used to run upstate you know ted i'm sure yeah Joe. from albany yeah, Ted, uh, hey, give me irate. You book Cutthroat, and I'll put irate on all that war record release. And I was like, cool, done. And I started being able to use Castle Heights as leverage to get bands shows. Uh, it's funny because some people say it might have hurt them to be a Castle Heights band. It actually helped them get the foot in the door in a lot of places because Castle Heights bands had a reputation of drawing, even out of state, not just for in Queens, but they would bring it when they got a show in Long Island. Even if sometimes in Philly, they try and they bring 15, 20 people down. And a lot of out-of-state bands weren't able to bring it to New York. 
but it was cool because like I said, it just, it was a well-oiled machine. And, you know, we had, I was there for almost a 10 year run. I started there in the beginning of 93 and I left when the place closed at the end of 2002. This wow. November is, this November is 18 years that Castle Lights is closed. 18 years already. So you put so much into that. And I, and I knew speaking with you that you had such a mass of body of work that wasn't just Castle Heights. Oh yeah. I need to know because a lot of what we spoke on in previous episodes was just how things pre-internet worked. And when you talked about these label street teams, what was your first uh, foot in and what, what drove you to want to work on that side of the label versus trying to start a band like your brother's? I just, I don't know. I think just my, kind of just my talking ability and I, you've met me and we've talked many times, Joe, I'm, you know, an engaging, friendly person. I like talking to people. I think people know there's no bullshit in me when they talk to me. They don't see me as some, you know, conniving promoter who's political. I'm very non-political as a promoter. I always have been. Uh, I try to be fair to everybody. I try and give opportunities to everybody. Uh, you know, the bands I managed, uh, we started from the ground up and, and earned our reputation. Sworn Enemy, Shutdown, Irate. I uh, worked with Billy Club Sandwich, Five Minute Major, Through the Discipline. Um, and again, started out as opening acts. And on my shows, you guys got to go on first just because I manage you. Yeah, but they earn their their respect to get to be that band to go on before E-Town, get to be that band to go on before, before uh, you know, AF or someone like that, uh, earn spots. And I think th that was an old school way that I, I like doing stuff because I started out like that. Dude, I was working coat check room i did like i said handing out flyers on the corner i had to watch half the people throw it on the floor and take a shot to your pride in 1990 91 handing out fucking flies for to window and doing uh like bands like um no joke i worked for slaughter international remember the band slaughter up all oh, night my my mother was a hair metal oh we can have and then in the <laughs> end of the 80s in the beginning of 90s she was actually booking metal bands which is oh, one great. of the segues into how i became a promoter nice so did you just happen to just run into a promoter who, who's like, hey, kid, you want to help me out, give out flyers? Or were you trying to already edge into that world, which put you into that path? I did an interview. I did a I happened to be at the cult show in 1991. Uh, cult was on tour for their uh, album ceremony and Lenny Kravitz was opening up. And MTV was out there. I had a friend who worked at MTV at time in 91. And he's like, hey, we're going to be doing interviews for, uh, you know, the, the Lenny Kravitz and the cult upcoming artist. Lenny Kravitz was really coming into his own at the time. Matter of fact, Lenny probably should have headlined over the cult, to be honest with you. So it was Lenny Kravitz and the cult, a double bill. And I got on camera and I did an interview and I was talking to a girl who's producing there. I just, like I said, engaging conversation. And she's like, you work with bands. You ever do stuff, work with bands. You're really knowledgeable about the scene. Like, cause I was telling her stuff about the cult. She didn't even know. And, uh, you know, I'm, I was like an encyclopedia. And just, again, just having conversations with people who are saying, you should do this or do that. You know, maybe you should give your resume to MTV. And funny, my brother Mike ended up working for MTV Sports about a year or two later for Dan Cortez. Uh, I never worked for MTV, but what I did was make friends. And then people would say, hey, my friend has a club. You ever you ever uh, do promotion or ever do marketing for bands? I'm like, no, nah, I'd, be, I'd be interested in doing it. I always took any opportunity I could, whether it was working the door, just, you know, come to the door. Oh, hand out flies at the door, you know, I'll give you $50. I'll be like, and I had a regular job. So I did it for fun. I didn't do it for money. I was in my early twenties then, but I just uh, enjoyed the process of building myself up. And again, um, I liked marketing the bands. I was really into the music and I was into all types of music. So I didn't mind doing it. And again, it was just talking to certain people. And my first opportunity to do a show was at a club called Ferraris in Westbury, Long Island. I think it was like in 92, 
when someone let me book a show and actually ironically I booked uh, the can who are the Candiria guys today. Uh, you know, John LaMacchia from Candiria yes. guitar player and Mike MacGyver shout out to those two guys. I was their manager for a band called dead air in like 92, 93. And they were playing the, they had like a pink Floyd stone temple pilots house and chains type of band called dead air. We did a bus trip. I booked a bus trip. We drew like 75 people to this club. We really brought it to Westbury, Long Island from Brooklyn. Club owner was impressed. He's like, you want to you want to do shows on the regular here? Like book bands from, you know, just just run shows here. I was like, I don't know. I can't do these bus trips every week. It took a lot out of me. It was it was a big thing to get 100 people down from Brooklyn to that club. But we packed it out. So I did a couple other shows. I did my brother's band, Lament, my brother John's band with Joe Afi, Joe from Maximum Penalty, the guitar player, a longtime family friend. And again, it was just me liking the business and being behind the scenes that I got known for being a contact guy and a go-to guy when it came to getting word out on the band, getting the band an opportunity to know the club. Hey, Kev, can you try and get us into this club in Long Island? I was like, and I just made friends and that was the whole thing. But I knew that if I was going to do anything, I had to have a room of my own and do shows on my own. That's why, you know, uh, Ferraris was kind of like a, you know, they had disco night and they had rock night. They didn't want to do hardcore. We couldn't do hardcore. There. So we just did rock and metal. I had to find a place where I could do hardcore and death metal on the regular. That's where the castle, uh, castle Heights thing came in. Cause the guy, Frank called Frank castle. He liked the Punisher. Uh, his real name is Frank, <laughs> Frank, Frank Cruzeras, you know, and I'm Kevin castle. Everybody was castle. Uh, and I wound up saying, I said, Frank, can I do, you know, death metal, black metal? He goes, yeah, just, I you know, just let's have no like controlled chaos. I, I know what goes on at these shows, but I, let's not have any, no cops, no people are going to shut me down. And I assured him that, and I, of course, over the years, a couple of things happened, but, uh, and he gave us uh, the room and it was a small place, but we made the most out of it. And then, like I said, once Sub-Zero played there, Terminal Confusion, all these bands, um, you know, Only Living Witness playing there from Boston was major because how'd you get Only Living Witness, Kev? Like they barely play New York. And when they do, they play like Lamores or Seabees. They play in Castle Heights. I'm like, well, we're friends with the Only Living Witness guys, Craig and Jonah, uh, the singer, we're friends of my brothers. So again, same thing with Sam Black Trey and contacts that I made. People were just friends with people. We just knew each other. And I guess, you know, they trusted me. Like, oh, this guy comes from a family, musicians. I never heard of Castle Heights, but I'll take a chance. I'll play there. And when people went there, they had a great time. And then we started doing Trip Face from Long Island. Uh, I remember Trip Face back in the day. Uh, and we did some Long Island bands, some bigger Long Island bands. I'm not sure if we did Tension or show. I'm, I'm on the fence about if we did Tension back then. We might have. But we started doing, everyone started playing. Then we got a young, very young shutdown, a very young indecision, but all still in high school. Uh, young, young bands that they started out at Castle Heights too. And uh, we bought a Brooklyn scene there. Then I started to tap into the Queens scene and it just took off from there. And then again, started making friends with Jamie Hatebreed in Connecticut. Jamie was running clubs and doing shows. This is before Satisfaction as Death as Desire even came out. This is before that even came out. Um, E-Town from Jersey started 20 old school, 25 to life lineup. Uh, just everybody. I mean, uh, when you can think um anybody you can think of i mean even some of the more local bands redline from new jersey and i just go on and on and on of course shattered realm um and i'm even probably leaving some people out we made good friends with one king down had their very first show down here for one king down back in the day uh just an assortment of uh cast the characters and we got a reputation and we started to be that little club that had the big reputation. That's what people used to say about us. Like, wow, it's so small. And I'm like, yeah, we were much smaller than CBs in size, but we were very competitive and we started to be a club where people started seeing what we had going on that they didn't want to compete with us, let alone we didn't want to compete with them. 
But quite honestly, back then, Joe, in the 90s, there was enough people to go around. Nobody's show hurt another show, but you tried not to book like if Earth Crisis was playing across town. If I had shut down and all at war that night, I didn't move it unless the guys really wanted to move it. We stayed and did what we had to do. And both shows were packed. You know, and we ran late and the competition club Voodoo Lounge across town in Bayside that was only open a couple of years. They ran early. So once their show stopped at 11, all night was just getting started. I mean, you played Castle Heights. We ran late yeah. at Castle Heights. You know, we ran late and nobody and nobody bitched. You know, no. so. I have to ask because you had actually said it with confusion and tying into your death metal uh, booking. Mm -hmm. It was that early that metal had a, a direct touch and influence in hardcore uh, in your perspective. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, th there's no doubt. I mean, confusion and Marauder were, were hardcore, but not really. I mean, they were playing something different, kind of a, a mixture of metal and hardcore with a little bit of thrash uh, death metal. And when my boys, I rate, who became legendary at Castle Heights. Yeah. I rate became legendary on the East Coast. I We can get into them a little bit le more later. That, that that was a band that I thought, you know, was going to, the sky was the limit for those guys. They were reputed. They were being asked to be played everywhere. And it was all based out of Castle. And they were very much influenced by Marauder and I rate. It was like a new breed, a new generation of that band 10 years later. But the forerunners were definitely Confusion and Marauder and Dark Side all and, and war. bands like that. All Out War, of course, All Out yeah, War. Yeah, because uh, I believe the first marauder demo had the same guitarist as would be on the alt war demo right and and that's something that i speak on often when people start talking about the influence in hardcore as far as what metal goes and it's like when you really start looking at these these quintessential bands at that po at moment they became the blueprint for all that 90s heavier hardcore sound that deviated away from the punk backbeat and the chorus into the breakdown fused kind of song structure. So mm -hmm. it's cool hearing it from your perspective, because obviously you were right there at with confusion and uh, Marauder specifically. So as an, as a, as a independent at the time when you first started doing your shows, mm -hmm. how much of it was direct to band and how much was there even besides Finberg, was there even agents handling some of the bands that you were bringing in for your first couple shows? Um, for the, I first started doing direct to band and I started to develop a reputation of getting around the agents and then that didn't work out so well as we got bigger. Uh, and I'll, I'll get into, uh, the full uh, spectrum of that if you want me to, um, when I first started like only living witness, I would call Craig or Jonah, uh, the singer for witness directly, Sam black church, called them directly tree, called them directly. Now they had agents, uh, all at war uh, directly. Um, then a, a, a talent agency called Bay Ridge Talent opened up in Brooklyn. Yep. They ran out. They ran out of Lemoore's. It was Ken Creedy, and Ken was very nice to me. Ken was very good to me. I would say he was a, a very mentoring to me because he saw what I was doing in Queens. Boy, did we do a lot of business together, John Finberg. Uh, you know, there's stories he is about a, him. He is notorious and not very well liked and i think already been brought up twice on this podcast in previous episodes so <laughs> yeah well i saw the i saw the thing that broke out today from uh, metal sucks my god what the hell that story that broke out today i don't know if you saw it i, I mean you got to read it joe it's like a, like a, a moby dick novel of uh, accusations and things against him i mean uh, i i don't know you know in this day and age old ghosts come back to haunt you if you don't behave properly. I think uh, the one thing I can, you know, listen, I we've all made our mistakes in this business. We've had dust up with people. I'm sure you've had some dust up with bands, uh, but I have uh, never 
uh, leveraged who I was so I could get somebody a show and played uh, blackball or blackmail games with anybody. Uh, I can know well that no, that could never come up for me. I tried to be as fair as I could, and I was always straight up with people about uh, even if people to get on a big show, here's what's required. If you can do it, do it great. If not, but uh, when I read about this stuff of these old school I, games, You just made me uh, yeah. roll through this, and it's it's – from from my perspective, because obviously we have a, a age gap that's pretty significant. Yeah. Um, as I started promoting, it was the exact same way. I went right to bands. Yeah. John Finberg was one of the first agents to basically see a flyer with one of his bands on and be like, "I didn't book that. How yeah. did you do that?" And I'm like, "Well, I went to the band." So, um, and and a lot of what I do with these podcasts is uh in the episodes explain as almost like a tutorial for because we have a lot of younger people who are trying to do what we did and trying to like learn from this. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're going to start out working with bands and then I'll let you take it away, which far as like how you have to deal with the agents once they come into play. Yeah. I mean, uh, so basically I had known Ken from Lemoore's cause I was a customer at Lemoore's and my brothers had played there. I had admired Ken because he had two of the hottest bands in the East coast life of agony in their prime yep. and type typo negative in their prime. Two of my uh, all time favorites. Yeah. And, and guys that I knew I was a Brooklyn guy. I was a Lemoore's guy. Even when I was a castle Heights guy, uh, I got respect from Lemoore's uh, the Parente brothers who ran it, Mike and George, uh, Mike Jr. was a friend of mine. I booked Mike's band Edge of Sanity many times from Staten Island. Uh, Mike drove me home many times from the club. The son of the owner of Lemoore's took a shine to me and said, same thing. You know, if we can help you out in Queens, if you need bands, let me know. Again, I just I think I rubbed people the right way instead of the wrong way where they didn't see me as a threat and they saw I was doing something good. Uh, you know, I was definitely not in it for the money because there was no money back then. I had a regular job. So I did it for, for fun to a degree. But then at one point, and I'll get into that, that I had to take it very much serious as business. Um, in the beginning, though, it was all and it was all and it went well. Like you had little dust ups, fights here and there. You know, it's not it's unavoidable. But as far as structure of the show and anybody who played back then, you'll see. Uh, even when this gets broadcast, there'll probably be many more great memories of Castlights than any haters. I, I would say it would be uh, 90-10 in our favor of people who love the club, maybe 10% of people who didn't like it because they found it intimidating. I mean, or they found it like uh, a little clickish for them, even though it wasn't. We were welcoming to everybody. But again, the other, if you were a Castle Heights guy or a Castle Heights band, which again, I didn't think was such a bad thing. But um, dealing with the agents, I dealt with Ken. Ken was always fair to me. And I, you know, when he would ask for stuff that I could not do, I mean, it was 150 capacity fucking room. And, you know, you can't ask for this kind of ridiculous money that I would have to charge. You know, back then we'd like to keep it uh, in the 90s. We'd like to keep it between eight and $10 back in the day. Yep. Unless we had a significant headliner like Crowbar. Uh, later on, I, I got to work in, in their rookie years, I call it with Mastodon, and we had bands like that from Relapse and stuff. Then it would be 12 to 15 bucks, depending, but I usually kept it between eight and 10. And I didn't really want to spike it more than 10 for a hardcore show because I knew from my brothers, keep it 10. People will pay 10. People won't bitch about 10. And I remember even my brothers even saying it. Even for the space, if you have enough, pay the staff. You know, you have to figure out, you do shows, figure out back then, sound man, two bounces, at least two. I always promised Frank I'd have two guys, one at the front, one at the back. And I had the same guys, as you know, for years, the famous John the Doorman, who's still with me to this day, by the way, John the Doorman from Castle Heights, still with oh, me. Over Black Dorner. Oh, yeah, Black Dorner. John's still yeah. with me. John's, wow. still, John, John's still in it. So clearly we had a good team going because we stayed together. Um, you know, if things would suck, no, we would never stay together. So, uh, 
again, you tried to figure things out. So I would tell Ken, listen, I want to keep it to this. He'd work with me. He'd go, okay, how about this? Can you do this? Fine. But <laughs> Finberg was another story, but I usually got to work with Ken and I usually got to deal with Ken. Ken was in charge of the agency. So that was always good for me because if I had a problem with, you know, who I would go to Ken, uh, you know, on occasion I'd have to deal with him. Uh, John, he was pretty cool to me to a degree, a little push your buttons and know how to do it. But I wasn't some big money maker. I was a small club. I was barely making a dime a dollar. I wasn't anybody that you really had to mess with. So again, people saw us as non-threatening. They're like, ah, doing little shows over there in Queens. Yeah. Nice guy. He's a nice guy like his brothers. So that's, that's kind of how I rolled with people. But then it started to, once we started to get real name bands, the crowbars, uh, the bands like that, people start saying, Oh, wait a second. They're tapping into uh, national acts now. I mean, we started doing bands like electric hellfire club. I was like, castle Heights is doing electric hellfire club because I locally, I had tapped out the reserve there and I had to bring in new, but keep it the room fresh and hot. And I said to Ken, you've been to the room. Can we do some of these bands on your roster? He goes, yeah, I don't see why not. He goes, it'll pack the room out. It'll cost a little bit more, but you know, you'll, you'll get a reputation. You'll get more bands. So I kind of followed his lead and his advice, uh, which was good. Like I said, he was not a guy who tried to rake me over the coal. So I had a very good experience with Ken. Uh, other agents, like I said, I don't got to get into naming them. Yeah, don't uh, worry about uh, that. Yeah, I'll say another agent that was very good to me was, you know, Rich Hoke from Brutal Truth. Yes. Rich is a great guy. Rich helped me like you would not believe. Rich is the one who introduced me to a young Atlanta band who just wanted to come down, play New York. They don't care if they get five cents. And that was Mastodon. And it's still the same lineup to this day, those guys. Uh, I love those guys in Mastodon. We got to be very good friends with them to this day. They started out at Castle Heights, played for me about five times. And then they took off a rocket ship on that band in the, in the mid 2000s. And, I'm, and I was more than happy for them because they were great, great guys. And Rich was the one who sold me on bands. Today's the day bands like that bands like ISIS and stuff like that. Rich would be like, Hey, I got this band or this relapse band. If you could do me this favor, I'll hook up one of your bands out here. And I'm like, okay. So rich Hoke was very helpful to me uh, from brutal truth. And uh, again, I, I didn't really have that many bad experiences with agents. And I think again, castle heights, there was no fooling of the capacity. You can go there and literally count the heads in there. The, the, to be accurate, so people know, and now the, the legend of Castle Heights, how many people it actually held. Here's the deal. And the club is long gone now. So uh, the capacity on the wall was 130. No joke. Uh, 150 is what we put out there. But, but we went to two, 300 on a regular basis. I mean, it just we that's, we... that's standard hardcore procedure. Standard hardcore procedure, Joe. Standard hardcore <laughs> that's procedure. That's how it is, man. <laughs> exactly. But our legit capacity, everyone, 175, it was 130. How do I know? Because I've been there with the landlord. I was in on meetings. I was down on lawsuits. I was everything that's happened to us over the years there. I was there every minute of the day uh, for all the intricate details. It was the, the legit capacity was 130. So that's why I laugh when people are like yeah that night of the irate regularly it's like 400 people and like guys there wasn't uh, 400 people there. <laughs> there wasn't 400 people there we have we and me and john have the records of like the biggest drawing shows and yes the biggest drawing shows were hardcore shows no redeeming and shutdown have one of the records uh for hardcore e-town and irate have another and hate breed record release for satisfaction is death is desire is uh those top three actually uh for well over 300 one murphy's law show did over 300 too so 300 was as much as we can go it was 300 paid now at this stage I like that you are also uh, reaching out beyond just hardcore where you, you were actually booking the full calendar for that venue, right? There was no other oh, yeah. promoters. No, no, so, it was me. It was me. 90% of the time it was me. We had a Spanish promoter um, who did Spanish rock and we had a girl named Anita 
who came in towards the, the the later years and she did a bunch of death metal shows there and stuff because quite honestly i was you know i was overwhelmed uh working there plus i was running a full-time management company with irate shutdown was on the road shut down one king down in uh 99 2000 2001 i was a busy mfr and uh so anita was doing a bunch of stuff there with death metal shows and that was fine by me but hardcore hard rock metal thrash black metal it was all me punk rock punk it was all me so I'm a, I'm a Philadelphian and I would travel up to Castle Heights and it, it was a project because obviously we had to deal with certain bridges, traffic, the whole nine yards. Sure. But one of the things you, you laid out earlier is that you started, you started with one borough of bands and then you went and started getting other boroughs for non from non New Yorkers. How hard is it to get an, uh, one borough of hardcore people to come to the other borough for shows? And I know, Oh, and from, from speaking, it always seems like Manhattan is considered the city. Yeah. So uh, how hard was it for you to try to make people come to Queens out there on Northern Boulevard in, in the beginning and the earlier years? Um, it was a little difficult at first, like, because it was funny. I attacked the borough of Brooklyn first. I don't know what, why I didn't dip into Queens. Cause I had a Queens partner. I think they had just some of the craziest bands at that they time. Did, they, they did. They did. And they wanted to change the scenery. But listen, crazy country club was doing great. And there was other, some other shows that they did at some other places. Now, like I said, no one ran, you know, Ken and the Parenti brothers ran Lamores. If you had a chance to do a one-off there as an independent promoter, you'd maybe get a shot to do a gig there once every couple of months. But people were looking to have their own thing, their own room. Uh, so Crazy Country Club, you know, I'm not, a matter of fact, I'm a little sketchy on who actually the promoter was for the Crazy Country Club. Uh, I think there was different, some different guys. I'd have to ask my brother Mike about that. But I was determined to have like my own room where I can book stuff where every weekend you knew there'd be shows. And I had a strategy of like uh, Friday night to do hardcore, uh, Saturday to do rock and metal. And Sunday was kind of a, a cavalcade of whatever I could get done. And Sundays then became a regular thing. Um, but yeah, I started out booking Brooklyn bands in Queens and, uh, they just, I guess they just wanted the chance. But the cool thing about hardcore bands in Brooklyn is that they were down with a lot of Queens guys. So when, when a Brooklyn band played, uh, Castle Heights, uh, Queens heads came out cause they were friends. Cause there was a lot of Queens guys who used to come to crazy country club. So Queens and Brooklyn had a good kinship going on there. Then uh, again, some Bronx bands started trickling in and stuff like that. Uh, every, every, uh, borough back then had one or two little clubs that did shows. Uh, the Bronx had a couple of little spots too. the train depot, I believe was one of them that was called. And there was actually a Blackthorn Bronx at one point, uh, that was doing shows over there. But again, we, it just started again. It just started to snowball where I get calls from where you guys from. Well, we're from Staten Island, but we can bring it to Queens. Like, give us an opportunity, bro. We'll bring 30 people. And I would be like, OK, you know, I didn't you know, back then, Joe, you'd have to get all these credentials and yeah. uh, send, send me a tape, you know, send me online. So you got a video, you got a clip. I'd be like, let me roll the dice with these guys, because again, and it would be the best thing I ever did, because back then, Joe, also people's word was bond back then. People, there were guys who would come up and apologize to me, like, how do we do tonight? Kev. I said, you did 24. That's not 30. I'm sorry. I promised you 30. We'll do better next time. Joe, I, that doesn't remotely happen today anymore. No, not at all. At all. No one, if anything, they're like, would you two people? What? That's not good. But back then people were apologetic for like, I remember Robbie GH one time uh, for everybody gets hurt, you know, the boys and everybody gets hurt. Yep. Rob, uh, who declared uh, Castle Heights the dojo, where you started out there, and if you couldn't make it at Castle Heights, you weren't going to make it on tour. You you had to hone your craft at Castle Heights. And he would say, he would come up to me and go, what do we do tonight, Chief? And I'd be like, uh, oh, you almost hit 50. He goes, we didn't hit 50. He goes, 
next time I'm doing 60. And, and there was like this pride in drawing back then where people wanted to outdo and not outdo the bands that don't want the bill, but they wanted to be the ones we brought it tonight. And there was a pride in that. And it wasn't about great. Now, you know, give us this money and bands got paid well at cast lights. Everybody was treated fair, but uh, there was just this pride in drawing and people wanted to be, and even saying, yo, next time, can we headline? And dude, I would die if I heard that today. If someone wanted to step up and headline local shows today, everybody's trying to get out of headlining local shows. No, like they want, no, no, one, they, no one wants to play last. They want nothing to do with it. They want nothing to do with it. And back then, the headliner at Castle Heights went on at 1230, bro. 1230. Even on a Sunday. We had early shows on a Sunday. And back then, I had to even separate certain bands so they can headline and get their moment in the sun, so to speak. And I would separate them. Billy Club, because everyone was strong enough to headline. EGH, Billy Club, Irate. Now, when you put all those guys on the same show, it was a, a zoo. I mean, it was complete pandemonium, but in a good way. But it was so crazy that I had to break up people and say, you know, let's get the most for you guys, for yourselves and for this club and separate you guys. You know, it was good to put them all on the same bill. Irate's one enemy who was mindset back then. EGH Billy Club, but we had to. After a while, it was like, okay, you guys are strong enough to go off on your own. We'll put a new lineup of support underneath you. So this way, you know, you guys could be the feature act. You can play as long as you want. You can get paid more. And uh, it, you know, I, I had, to, like I said, Joe, I had to become business. You know what I mean? I had to become business at one point where it wasn't okay. It's all fun, but I got to do what's best for Frank and for Uncle Louie who own the place and. Make, you know, it's great to have one big hot night, but we got to have a show next week. So let's break it up. You guys play this week. You guys play that week. And everybody was cool with it. I would see everybody more than I saw my own family back then, Joe. I saw people at Cast Lights two, three times a week coming in there just to hang out. And, and it's just such a different world today. It's amazing, the difference. Well, I think the bigger part of what happens now is so much of it is digitized. Yeah. And so many people are used to communicating through telephones and through social apps that when you get there, like I remember we would play. And you and I would sit outside and just talk for an hour. And you had that time in between all the th things going on with the shows. And I think that, I mean, from a promoter point of view, I don't even know the people in some of the bands that are playing, unless I see them on stage, there's no hello. Thank you. Right. It's just kind of like oh. one kid. What like, uh, I actually broke this kid's balls. He came to get paid. I'm like, what band are you in? And he said, I'm in this band. I said, I've never seen you before. And I literally was like, oh, you want a CD? Do you have a video? Let me like, you know, because there's no more engaging yeah. with the promoter. You know, it's right to the telephone. No. It's right to let me go with some eat and you don't build the relationships. And that was key at that time. And uh, something that I took from you, you just spoke on. And it's something that I speak on in Philadelphia now and have for quite some time is when you build up this course of bands that are all linked together and yeah, all their friends mm -hmm. want to see all their bands play together. It is better to break them right. apart. So you have, instead of one giant show with again, we're talking about 150 cap room. Yeah. You don't need right. all five of you when each of you could do your own show. That's great. And then we have more great shows. And I, and I remember you saying this, you're like, yeah, I could stack every night with the same three, but then what's next week. What's the week after. And that was a lesson that exactly. I took from you. And it, I had to put it in play here as some of our bands kept coming up. And I, and I think it's important when you see bills, on the internet now it's the same three or four bands in these same towns and i'm like why don't they break them up why don't you know like let's get somebody else a chance and that's something i got from you at that point um we're talking about when when you say numbers and for people who don't understand the way that he's speaking on these numbers is if you came to the door you would say i'm paying for egh or i'm paying for irate oh you have a oh you have a pass oh you have a pass yeah, yeah. A pass. Said, yeah, a pass. yeah so these young so you uh, see so these uh a lot of 
a lot of people don't even understand that. And that's like a, that was the metric to understand if a band was drawing in a lot of places, that's actually still how bands, mm-hmm. uh, we, we figure it out. You know, it's, it's, especially with the on, online sales and all that, it's a little bit harder to break that up, but that was, that was the system that he was talking about. And there was a thing where there was a letdown. We're like, Oh, cool. I wish we had more people that could say our names, but it was just a, it was a great thing to be an out of town band to come in. And uh, so at this stage, you're working with metal, you're working with hardcore, and how was was Manhattan at that time still thriving with CBs, or were you having any issues because CBs were starting to come back in with the Tyler Rich Hall era? Because uh, later on, I'd like to talk about like when you started dealing with some of the ISIS stuff, which started was coming from the 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 more metallic and less traditional hardcore stuff. Were you having were you having tussles where you had to like engage people to bring a band that might have played a CBs to Castle, or was it just natural that they would come to you uh you know i didn't you know the funny thing is i've never met tyler king never met him i know my brothers know him well and i see my brothers go back and forth with him in political uh, diatribe on facebook Uh, that i I never get involved in i just kind of sit back and i go i'm the booker and yet i never met this guy who's kind of a legendary booker i'm like in the same size yeah, king size booking. I have none but respect for him, but we don't know each other. He knows of me from Castleites. I know of him from CBGBs. We never met, never met. And I know Rich Hall, of course. Rich Hall, I've met before. Uh, but Tyler, never met him, never shook his hand, never met him. Probably been in the same room with him. We just never met directly, never been introduced. But I know of him. And like I said, nothing but respect uh, for what he did back then. Um, but I never, again, um, I think maybe because I was a Scandato. Um, that uh, people didn't uh, put that pressure on me. Uh, you know, Mike, my brother Mike, would sometimes say, uh, Kev, uh, you got uh, such and such playing on this. They got one king down and uh, turmoil. Remember, you know, turmoil from your neck of the woods over there yep. uh, from uh, Philly, Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, you know, at CB's that day, they got District 9 and this. I'm like, Mike, I can't move it. Like, you know, nothing's going to happen. So he's like, oh, no, why is there a problem? He's like, no, I'm just, you know, for the sake of both shows, drawing good. But no one ever said, hey, you should move your show or try to, uh, you know, uh, guilt trip me or or fear monger me that, uh, you know, I I should move my gig. Uh, Because, you know, the CBs, the CBs, cat slides, cat slides. I got to be at one point, to be honest with you, Joe, where I thought once we were, you know, past the five-year mark, uh, you know, I'm, I'm again, we, we got more business oriented where there were certain things, um, as you know, Joe, the uh, the geographical uh, limits of where you can play on those contract riders for certain bands. You know, those, uh, you know, you can't play here if you're going to play there. That's agents started yeah. doing that. You know, agents started putting those uh, radius clause, as everybody knows it as. Um, and I never heard the word radius clause. I started a castle in 93. I started hearing the word radius clause in 97. That's when I started hearing radius clause on a regular from agents. Agencies. My first four years, no one told me radius clause. Um, but again, I, um, there were times where I thought maybe our uh, attendance suffered a little bit or we hurt somebody else's show a little bit. But CB's, no, nah, I mean, that, CB's was known for doing, Tyler was known for doing those Sunday matinees. So what I would do is I would do all age punk stuff. I did stuff with, uh, you know, the punk scene and oi scene. Uh, so if he was doing like some like, you know, Marauder show or something, I was doing something that that crowd wouldn't go to anyway, because we did uh, Sunday matinees on a regular at Castlites, but then we turned them into Sunday night shows where we ran a regular night show. We stopped that afternoon shit because everyone started dragging ass coming into the club and bands were yawning and getting there at one in the afternoon. So we're like, why don't we just run seven to 11 or seven to midnight? 
And we did that for the rest of our tenure at Castle Heights, and it went fine. And we did some big acts on Sunday, too. Yeah, you guys but, uh, did Death Threat one time, and they fucking killed it for a Sunday night. Oh, yeah, they killed it for a Sunday night. We did them on a Sunday night. We did so many bands on a Sunday night. Shai Halud, the old Shai Halud lineup from back in the day. Oh, uh, my God. I mean, I could just go up and down. Like, Turmoil played a bunch of times for us. Turmoil did very well for us. I love dealing with those dudes. Uh, I was wondering what even happened to them. Me and John Adolman have been trying to see. Uh, you, you even know what happened to Turmoil from, uh, from Penn? You know in, uh, uh, whereabouts? In, two, in 2014, they played This Is Hardcore as a one-off uh, kind of just like come back to play. Oh, wow. And from time to time, there was talks of them playing, but I know that with the singer living out West and different members scattered, it's not as easy for them to uh, play. So, you know, I don't see them kind of getting the gears together, but like we're bringing the band back together. Yeah. But, but with the advent of the kind of hardcore fest world we have, you never know if they'll pop up and do one or not. Yeah, I mean, we would do Ensign or Fast Break or, I mean, just name them. They play. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Besides the heaviest stuff, you were still doing Fast Hardcore. And that oh, was something yeah, that yeah. you that you don't see in the uh, when people are heralding Castle Heights. There, There's this whole other section where you were doing some of the sickest metal bands. But you were also everybody play Castle Heights. And that, it kind of gets lost in the feverish fandom for like the big names of the irates and the EGHs. And I always love that you had that ear to say, I don't care if you're a hardcore band. Come on, we'll, we'll do you. Well, you got to remember Shutdown. My brother was Shutdown was an interesting band because Mark was everybody loved Mark. I mean, if I could be as popular as my brother, Mark, you know, everyone loves my brother, Mark. So everyone wanted to play with Mark. Now, Shutdown technically belonged more with an ensign and a fast break and bands like that. But Shutdown would go right there with Swan Enemy and EGH and Billy Club Sandwich because Shutdown had some some mad breakdowns. They had some great dance breakdowns. But, you know, Mark's vocal and their style and youth crew and everything like that, you know, Shutdown was more the ensign fast, but like there was a certain, but Shutdown could, could roll with Crown of Thorns, Breakdown. So Shutdown was a very versatile band. So they were able, there was nothing metal about Shutdown, but there was a lot of cool breakdowns, old school, hardcore. Shutdown really flied that flag for hardcore values and stuff. And I think they had a lot of respect. So I never, anytime I had Shutdown playing, it wasn't just because it was Mark's, my brother. Every, I read, can we play with Shutdown? I'll be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to maybe do something a little different with Shutdown, not of like an old metal on it, but it just seemed to work. And same thing with Ensign. Ensign, I really didn't see metal bands playing with them, but for some reason at Castle Heights, it worked. Listen, if you had good dance breakdowns, you had some good stuff to, to dance to and mosh to, bands were like, ah, we don't care if you're more like, you know, old school hardcore than metal. Uh, it worked at Castle Heights for some reason. Now, granted, I don't think you'd see some of these bills other places like CBs, but Castle Heights mixed it up a little bit. Oh, believe me, I got questioned a few times for certain bands on certain bills with other bands, but it just worked. You know, what I mean, it worked. And if the fans loved it and the friends liked it, you know, whom, you know, why mess with something that's working? You know, what I mean, no, I, I and I think with the era of that time, New York hardcore specifically had not a uh, division between the different bands like you had mentioned. No redeem is social value and oh, Murphy's yeah. law. Yeah. And um, and actually, you actually brought up Voodoo Lounge. And I remember we played one time when Leeway had come back and uh, there was such a diverse sound of New York hardcore from that 94 to 98 that it's impossible to compress it into this is a new york hardcore sound because there were so many different branches whether it was crown of thorns or then later scarhead um out of that new york hardcore i know you mentioned uh john had a connection with joe affy through lament did you ever have any of the like the more classic sounding new york hardcore bands from time to time or was that more of just stuff that played in the city well i had cause for alarm 
I had uh, had calls for a long bunch of times. Uh, had breakdown. Had I'm trying to see who else played. Norman Bates and the Showerheads. I don't know if you remember them, Joe, from back in the day, uh, who were down with no redeeming social value. Um, trying to see who else. We had so many bands. Uh, you remember SFT Records? Kevin Gill yes. tried for the others. We did all of Kevin's bands. Yeah, Kevin had a really solid lineup at that time. We were had a very good working relationship, and ironically, me and Kevin are in the same kind of profession in a way. We both run national wrestling podcasts uh, together, and we were both in Rolling Stone ranked with our podcast years ago. And I remember saying to Kevin, you ever think we would make a, our bones in wrestling podcasts and we were doing music together? He had a label. I was running a club. It was weird how things turned out. I still uh, go back and forth with Kev on Twitter here and there. He's out on the West Coast for a long time now, but he was uh, he, he would feed me bands from his label. I booked everybody from that label. No, no Redeeming 2 was another band who just, we brought them there. It was just, uh, you know, a good kind of pandemonium. Um, but yeah, I mean, cause for alarm would be like really that old school style. Like I remember when we had cause for alarm, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think cause for alarm will do at Castle Heights. I'm like, I don't know. We'll give it a shot. We'll see how they do. Now, granted, it wasn't packed when cause for alarm played or bands like that, or, or those kind of real old school bands. Uh, it was again depends on the breakdowns the danceable parts the mosh shit that people can get into that's what sold it on castle heights but people respected the band some some people would come out but uh, obviously we kind of knew what our niche was at that point but we did we were always open to do different things like you know one night we'd have like we talk about punk i'd have the casualties on one night and then i'd have you know inspector seven a big ska band the next week then i'd have uh, a big metal hardcore show so we were trying to be as versatile as possible because again um we got known as a hardcore club the house of hardcore whatever you wanted to call us in queens but in, in total fairness and anybody who's listening to this and i hope a lot of people do from back in the day they'd be like oh i saw a lot of rock shows there yeah there was there was a lot of rock shows la guns played castle heights holy Bonham. shit yeah we did la guns we did Bonham, jason Bonham, john Bonham's son, son played uh, yeah. castle heights yeah i mean uh, i have we, a sad archival knowledge of all that era of bands from the amount of band dudes and from yeah. my mom and just so i think it's awesome that you're booking that as well <laughs> Oh yeah, no, we did. Uh, John John Bonham, uh, Jason Bonham was in town to play with David Letterman in '97, and uh, they contacted us. Said Jason's got his band in town. You got we, they want to do a show, a bunch of Zeppelin covers. Uh, this guy who had worked, I believe, for Letterman at the time, said uh, McQueen's guy. I want to have him at Castle Lights. They made us a money deal that we could afford uh, because at first, like we, we can't afford this guy at Castle. Lights. I get what we're going to pay him. So he asked us for basically money that we could totally come up with. And even if we lost, Frank was willing to take the money out of his pocket. So uh, we booked them on a week's notice and we had a couple of locals open. And of course, local rock bands were ecstatic to play with the Zeppelin son. And Jason was no slouch in his own, not just who his father was, but Jason was pretty mad famous himself having graced the stage with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and guys like that. I mean, Jason was a Zeppelin guy by default. So everyone bought their Zeppelin stuff there and getting autographs signed. And it was a big night for Castle Heights. It really was. And everyone just, I just remember everyone leaving. And that's when I kind of felt, wow, this, this little hole in the wall that me and Frank just bullshitted about doing shows here. And, uh, you know, we're getting major names here where cops would be like, oh, who's playing tonight? Uh, you know, and again, this little 130 capacity room and we made room for this big drum kit and we made it work, dude. And back then, no one's like, I refuse to play. The rider is not up to specifics. No one, oh, just psyched. No, no one pulled that shit on us. Joe, I had a nine channel PA for the most part of my time at Castle Heights. Nine fucking channels, bro. And then at, at fucking its best, we had an, an 18 channel. 19 channel board when we upgraded but for the most part i was doing big bands with a nine channel pa 
Behringer. So uh, again, you know, uh, because that's what we can afford. So we could fit the speakers we had hanging from the walls and it was about the ambiance. I don't think it was about the sound. I think it was about the vibe. The sound was not bad. I mean, the sound no, wasn't it was, bad. It was actually better than a lot of the places that were the same size and other venues and other oh, yeah. cities rather. Oh yeah. You know, but I would go to other clubs in Lemoore's. I'd see this fucking 22 channel board or 32 channel board. I'm like, what do you got a castle lights? I'm like, uh, nine channel, nine channel. I'm like, and I was like, he's yeah. like, Skidano, you're not that charming to get away with that. I was like, I, the bands don't complain. Like I said, cause we were a total blue collar club. All of us, Frank, uncle Louie all worked other jobs. Frank painted and did uh, maintenance during the day. Uncle Louie was a, was a handyman. Uh, John and Dorman worked at Wallbaums. I was working in the city um, at a place called Vera Institute when I first started. And then I would just do temp work there. But uh, because again, it, well, we didn't make a lot of money in the beginning. They never really made a lot of money in general. But we, once we were there about five years, I literally quit my job in the city and I started working there full time. Then I started managing bands full time. So I was in it from 96 to 90, about 97. I was full time, full time Castle Heights. Uh, everything was Castle Heights. Um, on occasion, I would do an outside show. Uh, I had to sublet shows at Voodoo Lounge at one point because Castle Heights got busted by the cops for overcrowding. I think that, you're the one who put us on the Voodoo Lounge show. That we I, I, I might have did. Yeah, I think I did because Mary Bermudez, who I still talk to to this day, she's been out of the business for years. She was Black Widow production. She was the girl with the black hair who worked the door at the Voodoo Lounge. Uh, she was. The, and I was again, I was friendly with Crosstown Rivals, who I was probably supposed to be enemies with. But I was friends with them at Voodoo Lounge. And it was a good thing because when Castle Lights got busted, me and John Adorno man went to the competition club and said, can we run out of here? And they said, yeah, these guys will bring Castle Heights people here. Sure, I'll capitalize on that. And when we stayed there, and I remember when we were leaving and going back to Castle Heights because the cops had laid off us for a while. And Frank's like, all right, we can resume hardcore shows again. And I'm like, oh, shit. I booked like about five shows at Voodoo Lounge coming up. And I'm like, uh, you know, I had to tell the owner, Al, my guy, I got to bring it back to my first loyalty and love is Castle Heights. I told you it was only a temporary situation here. So what we did was I kept a couple of shows there to keep a good working agreement with him. So I'd work, we'd work Castle heights uh on friday and saturday and then work voodoo lounge on sunday so i was working both queens clubs at one time i remember i did converge over at the uh, voodoo lounge because converge was too big for castle heights so i did check out this bill joe it was converge buried alive which is of course scott vogel from terra uh, remember he was in buried alive back yep. in the day so it was uh converge buried alive glass jaw an up-and-coming glass jaw who was not wow. anything yet God, uh, God forbid. Remember those dudes? Yeah, my God brothers. For, yeah, God forbid. Yeah, God, Doc and Doyle, and uh, a couple of uh, Dead on Impact and uh, another local Queens band. And we did that show. We did about four hundred people at Voodoo Lounge, and we killed it. We never could have did that at Castle. So to keep everybody happy, I did the bigger stuff uh, with like major agents at Voodoo, and I did the, the, what was comfortable at Castle Heights. But then, unfortunately, not to, nothing to do with my show. There was a stabbing at an incantation show at Voodoo Lounge. It was uh, uh, an outside promoter. And uh, that was it for Voodoo Lounge. Voodoo Lounge was done. We had nothing to do with that show. We got the call that night that Voodoo Lounge is probably done because uh, incantation and a bunch of their boys got stabbed by some dude with a utility knife. Some fan uh, was over a girl. I don't know what it was over, but yeah, it was incantation was involved and club was done and Voodoo Lounge was done. Then Castle Lights was the last man standing. Well, I, um, I really would like you to go through this as it sounds silly, but uh, I pour concrete for a living. And, and, and I talked to Richie Crutch uh, on another podcast. He leaves Pennsylvania at 430 in the morning to work in New York City, mm -hmm. comes back home, gets home at five, goes to shows, runs his podcast. And, and that's something very similar to a lot of the working class people in hardcore who don't depend on this stuff. So 
you were getting up, you were going to work, you got your whole city day job. And this is before the internet where you have your cell phone right on you right. so you can connect. And then you were turning gears if it was Friday night and you're rolling in a castle. And yeah, I think a lot of people don't see that when they see people doing the back end work of hardcore is that a lot of this stuff is not going to make us money and we do it because we love it. And I love that you touched on that. Yeah. In the early days I had as many, and uh, you know, I'm, I just turned 52 this year uh, in June. And uh, when I started at Castle Heights, I was 23 going on 24. I worked at a place called the Vera Institute of Justice. I was there for about eight years. So when I started Castle Heights, I was there. I left Vera Institute in 97 uh, and then did some temp work for them. Why they would call me in to fill in because I knew the system over there. But uh, they, I started Castle Heights in 93. So my first four or five years, I was working two jobs and I had a girlfriend also in Jackson Heights at the time. So I spent all my time on trains. I was on the train every five fucking, it was like I lived in the subway. It was terrible. The day, night, Jackson Heights back. I was living in Sheepside Bay, Brooklyn. It's a two hour, three train ride from uh, Sheepside Bay to where I was living to Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, so yeah, that was a pain in the ass. But I was young back then. I, going out was nothing but a thing for me. Going to a concert at night, getting up at six to go to work. Uh, but by 97, it kind of lost its luster for me. And I did go full-time Castle Heights and everything was music and metal in the club. Everything was about the club at that point. And I was determined to make, uh, you know, Castle Heights like a real player in the industry. And I think it became that. But the first few years, yeah, I, I was working in the morning and got in trouble many a time at my regular job that paid my medical coverage and dental coverage. Many a time I had to do a, a quite a routine to save my job because I was so spent from and just, you know, running, running hard back then. And again, I wasn't a guy who party, didn't do drugs, didn't drink or anything like that, but I was kind of wearing myself thin. But yeah, in the beginning, no, you couldn't make a living any which way the first few years uh, doing shows, especially at a small place like that. You got paid for the night. You got a nice little pay, but nothing. Maybe you could pay your Con Ed bill. Maybe you could pay your, your Verizon bill, maybe uh, that week. Um, and there were nights I went home with nothing. There were nights that, you know, because I couldn't, you know, not pay my sound man. I couldn't not pay the doorman. Um, so again, it all depended, but. By 97, it became business, business, and we started working it like a business and uh, attendance and everything was up. And, um, you know, of course, certain things happened here and there. There was some unfortunate incidents and some uh, a lawsuit that happened. There was an incident, of course, a famous incident with Frank Fahrenheit. I'd be ridiculous to not even talk about that, uh, you know, where uh, Frank from Fahrenheit was injured outside the club. He was stabbed by some dude from a biker crew. And I just found out that dude that stabbed him died a couple of years ago. I just found that out the other, about a few months ago. And that was a bad incident. It had nothing to do with the club, but it was just something that stayed in the club. And it was not good, uh, you know, because we were so embedded in the hardcore scene. It was a very touchy situation. And, you know, it's many, many years ago now. It was 23 years ago. And thank God uh, the people, uh, you know, uh, the people who uh, – perpetrated that situation, you know, got their comeuppance down the road. Uh, Frank is, is uh, you know, alive and well. He says, I haven't seen him in years, haven't spoke to Frank, but I did work with the Fahrenheit guys. Again, Armando and those guys uh, and other bands, I worked with District 9, of course, we had great relationship with, but also in 90, uh, 96, 97, we got sued by somebody who slipped on a bottle in the back of the room and tried to really end our club. And uh, this guy got busted for cocaine possession and his lawyer had something else to do and basically dropped the suit against us because he was facing a federal charge for cocaine trafficking. So again, Joe, we had some trying <laughs> times and you know, it's funny, Joe, and I, and I don't mean, and believe me, I don't think any of that was funny, but ironic that 
when I quit my job at the Institute in 97, all those bad things happened. And I was like, God, I should have kept my regular job and nothing that I caused or had anything to do with. But again, these things happen. I remember Frank saying, this might be it for us. I'm like, Jesus, I just quit my other career. like to do this full time. We were rolling and we just had this string of bad luck. All those incidents happened, uh, 96, 97. Uh, but then 98, we were back on track and everything was good. And we were having some good, uh, good years and, and, uh, 99, 2000. I think I met you when did I meet you, Joe, 98, 99, 98 was the first time we started traveling up there. There you go. And then, uh, you booked a couple of our friends bands. And then when punishment got started in 2000, I did the, Hey Kev, can we come up and play? And you're like, Hey, you're not going to play up in the top. You're going to play early, but I'll do what I can for you. And exactly. It's exactly what you said happened is you go there, you play once. And then because people had known us and at that time, New York had come down to New Jersey, come down to PA, and uh, we had gone to Long Island. We we all knew each other from in the pit, all at the other shows in the East oh, Coast. Of course, yeah, yeah. So uh, we already kind of walked into a welcome vibe, but by the second time we played, immediately people were like, oh, yo, when are you guys going on? And people were going off, and it was not the not the scene of a place where you know the internet fantasies run, where you see people mosh. And I think yeah. a lot of people associate the hard dancing with this level of violence, like, Oh, everyone was stabbing each other. And it was like, no, nah, man, it was actually in a weird way, like competitive in a fun dancing way yeah. without, without trying to legitimately kill someone. And I think that in the nuances of the internet and the fantasy stuff that came about from people who weren't at the place, they see, and they just picture everybody, what you're talking about with a box hunter in their hand. And it's like ridiculous. In fact, you would get kicked in the head and someone would pick you up and it'd be a laugh. And, one of the things that I have to uh, say about you and John specifically is you were booking these bands and everybody knew each other, but you guys curated a community. It wasn't yeah. I'm booking a show or I want to see this band make me some money. You, right. you knew every, like it was like, cheers. You knew everybody there. Everyone knew you. Everyone definitely knew John. And, and that was a key factor to keep the violence down, which another part of what I say to people now is like, yeah, you could book whatever young band is going to bring everybody moshing. But if you don't know the kids' names, who are the ones who are going to kick somebody in the head, or you don't know everybody as a promoter, you're going to walk yourself into a position where no one knows who you are. You can't talk everybody down if, if heads get hot. And that's something that never, I never really saw anything like that at Castle to that degree, because there was a modicum of respect across the board for everybody. And then even more like that place was sacrosanct. And no one wanted to ruin it for you. And because of how much you put into everybody, and I think that's another key thing of probably why you started engaging in the management because of how much you were engaging with the bands. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that's that's right on point, Joe. Actually, I mean that's that's exactly right. Uh, there was like a this uh, respect level for me and John. People would test it many times. I laugh today because I'm really proud of him of what he's made his life out to be. And I I don't mind saying this. I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying this on the show. Uh, Lorenzo Antonucci, who was in Swan Enemy and Mindset, he was a headache for me. I managed him. I was his manager and he was always in trouble and he caused problems at the club. I had to ban my own guy. I had to ban my own guy from from club. <laughs> so it's like, because people would say, you know, we play favorites when I rave out. But I was like, listen, every we treat everyone different, the same, not different. And when we had to 
put our foot down and stuff. We had to ban our own friends sometimes from shows because sometimes things got out of hand. And if you're going to bring heat on the club, you know, see you next month. Come back in four weeks. It's like the soup Nazi on Seinfeld. Come back yeah. one month. No and, show for uh, you. No show for you. And now, and Lorenzo has a different person now and he's out in Hollywood making movies and, uh, you know, seeing him with Dwayne Johnson and TV shows. And, uh, just, I shake my head and me and John are like, wow, he has really turned it around. And, uh, but back then he would admit he was a problem child for me, a problem child for the band, problem child for Sal. Uh, just, uh, and that was, at, and again, Oh, well, my manager runs cast lights. It wasn't like, Oh, so I could do whatever I want. No, I'll ban you. If I had to, I'll ban my own brother. I'm not gonna let anybody take this operation down. And some people got mad us and some crews got mad at us and the area me and john uh, but we weren't gonna let anybody take this operation down it's true we worked too hard and once it became a business business john was working there every almost every night i was jay the sound man uh glenn from billy club was doing sound at one point there gary mutley was bouncing from billy club Kerry Schmidt, everyone knows Big Kerry from the yeah. hardcore scene was our head bouncer at one point. Uh, we were not going to let anybody take the operation down. Kerry had to put his foot down with guys who we considered friends and had to throw them out. Uh, this, and then you know, again, you know, people have bad feelings and no, we're not playing favorites. So that, that was a little bit of a problem, but nothing so noteworthy. But again, so I kind of said, dude, I, I'm banned. I'm, a guy I manage is not allowed here. So there's no favoritism. Um, but again, I think there was some, from an outsider's perspective, uh, you know, they would come in or if you're going there for the first time you see a couple of fights you're like ah it's, it's not for me or something like that because you know people call castle fights and i was kind of thought like yeah it's funny but i know that kind of aggravated the staff because it was like not for nothing we don't you know we're not uh you know promoting uh, that kind of violence here we're promoting dancing and we're promoting unity and we love seeing the bands all get together end of night jams people hugging and kissing each other going out the door we were not about violence i think that uh, people who just didn't like the club wanted to pretend that we were like some outlawish operation. And I've seen stuff on message boards and stuff, ah, oh, castle fights. So I'm like, probably there one time, you had a bad experience. But if you went there a bunch of times, you realize we were not, uh, we were not some glorified fight club. I'll admit that we were kind of like, if you want to compare it to wrestling back in the day, we were certainly the ECW, you know, where Lamores was probably the WWE, CBS is probably WCW, and we were probably ECW. I mean, because CBS, say what you want, but it was, a, it was corporate because it was a company. It was run professionally. It's an institution there. I mean, that club is just as known for Blondie and the talking heads as as it is for sick of it all. You know what I mean? And that's cool, man. That club is an all-purpose club for all types of music. I admired CBs uh, for that fact. But, uh, you know, as far as like a home front, I felt that we were uh, a home front for, for everybody because we were there. You come to drink. We'd have barbecues for the bands. We'd have band appreciation night, which I never seen any club do, by the way, until we started doing it. Uh, people go in hardcore will totally take my back on this. We had band appreciation night every few months in the late nineties, early two thousands. We invited bands. Frank would get the barbecue out drinks, either free for the first hour or half price for the night. And I never saw any club do band appreciation. I, I just, no, I've never with, heard of it anywhere else. Yeah. I just came up with it out of the fucking blue and John and everyone there, by the way, no one got any pay. We let bands do a jam. If Jay wanted to do sound like Jay, can you do a call blanche? Tonight? He's like, yeah, you know what? You know, the bands do a lot for us. I'll, you know, no problem. So that was the way the staff was. So I came up with ways to uh, make us separate from like other places and that we were kind of a real home front. And every time everyone had a record release party or a monumental occasion, including proposing to uh, a wife or a girlfriend, they did it at Castle Heights. So again, all due respect to the other clubs, I always thought we were kind of underrated in that aspect. I think people from the city dismissed us as, ah, 
that that that's not castle heist that's nonsense that's just like a bunch of fights and you know crazy bands that can't you know can't play the big shows it wasn't true at all i had a good relationship with dana who ran coney island high if you remember coney island High, yes. and we had a good trade embargo going on there where she had some bands that she wanted to get into queens like rock bands and i i rate would get the dsi show and uh egh would get on uh, a big show there or uh, Swan Enemy got uh, the shutdown and decision show there, and she gave all my bands like an opportunity to play there, and uh, we did very well at Coney Island High. That was a great club. I loved dealing with those guys at Coney Island High. They were really cool to us. They were we had great trade uh, embargo with those guys. Well, that's a part of the promoter thing that I think is not only unique for you, but at that time there was the people like you and I. At the time, I was doing shit in Philly at a smaller level. Right. We had our bands. And then we would talk to other people. Hey, you know, if like uh, I had Chris from Overthrow, Anthony oh, yeah. Brace, mm-hmm. and uh, hey, you want to come down here? Why don't you send one of our bands up there? And I, I, specifically with Coney, that was, you know, you you wouldn't see the EGHs and you wouldn't see the irate so much at CBs, but you saw like that's the first time I saw EGH wasn't actually at Castle, it was actually at Coney, and I was like, oh yeah, oh, yeah. Fuck, this band's crazy. Oh yeah, so, <laughs> and, and and the thing and the thing about it is is that was because instead of you just staying in your own, like my, your own lair, you were willing to reach out. And that's another thing that, especially in East coast hardcore, especially with the Twitter and Instagram. Now promoters need to do a better job at the younger level of like, yo, reach out, you know, like don't write on the internet. You know, it's hard for us to get shows. Are you hitting people up? Are you trading shows? Are you, you know, like, how do we know? You know, like right. I do that with the Richmond guys. I do it with the Connecticut. And it's the same thing. Cause that's the old school, you know, like, Oh, you got a band. We got a band. Let's switch it up. And uh, it's awesome to hear that that's how you were able to expose, especially EGH to the, to the city shows. Well, yeah, so, I mean, they, they, you know, Rob had been in setbacks and Chris Bonetto yeah. had props to Chris's brother was in cold front. Chris had props. By the way, I want to sidetrack one thing. Sure. I probably punished Nick B for like hours. We'll call him back when you used to call when you get a demo tape. Like I was, oh, yeah, call. Yeah. and uh, it hit me like, I think like when uh, we played together in uh, PA, Chris was like, yeah, my brother, Nick. I'm like, yeah, I talked to him on the phone. He's like, what do you mean? I, I was like, I used to call him and be like, yo, Cold Front. He's, and I was like a 17-year-old kid. He's like, you call my brother? And I'm like, yeah, I used to try to get Cold Front down here. Oh, man. Yeah, Nick was great. I, I'm, I'm sorry. Respect to Cold Front. There were another band that started out with me in the beginnings at uh, Castle Heights. Cold Front I'm a was, super uh, fan. Was, yeah, Cold Front was a local head run, and Nick was a great guy. I haven't seen Nick in years. I'd love to, to run into him one of these days. I haven't seen Chris in a long time, the, and Rob, and all those guys like Steve, and they're all family to me. Uh, you know, anytime we see each other, it's like right back into the old act. Uh, but it's been infrequent these years. Everyone's married, family. I believe Chris lives out of state. Uh, Rob has a family, children, and you know, like the, the normal protocol of things, uh, you know, but you, so you just don't see too many people anymore. But of course, I'm sure it's nothing but love when we see each other. And again, the great thing about that was I remember when EGH or Billy Club or Irate or Sworn Enemy would get to play Coney Island High and all the Castle Heights people, oh, Castle Heights crew in effect. And you would see just everyone just swarm out and come out. And at the end of the night, you go up and I'd be like, you know, how did Irate do tonight? And Dana's like, they drew 95. I'm like, 90? They do almost 100? It's like, yeah. She goes, when 
can they play again? And it was just a pride thing. And I go back to irate. And it's funny. Irate's like, we didn't hit a hundred. And I was like, you did 95 fucking people. <laughs> and, I, and I'm giving them money. And she gives us, you know, a few hundred dollars because we were opening for Deicide. So we knew what we were getting, you know, we were cool with it. And they're like, yeah, I just, you know, I wish we did a hundred people. I'm like, they're sulking. I'm like, guys, you fucking killed it tonight. You brought half the fucking crowd here. She's, yeah. she, she can't wait to have you back. So it's like, yeah, I just, uh, we expected about 130 people. And it just, it, again, I don't see that anymore today where I almost feel like crying when I, when I deal with bands and I tell them these old stories and they almost think I'm making it up where I'm like, let me get Phil Velasco, Phil vibes on the phone from my rate. And he'll tell you, I said, you don't believe me here from the bands themselves. It's not made up fish stories. These things happen. These bands, bands drew this way. There was a pride element. Yes, it was 20 years ago. So it maybe sounds like your dad telling you stories from back in the day because you're in your twenties and I'm twice your age, but this did take place. It did happen. It was very real. And the scene was a lot healthier for it back then. I can tell you right now it was, and there was some sort of, even if people threw it on the floor, there was some sort of pride about standing outside of a club and handing out flyers for your show. And even if 50% of people took them and go, yeah, I'm going to check it out. All right, I'll be there. I'll be there. And if someone threw it on the floor, you look the other way. I said, ah, what a dick, but you would be like, Hey, I handed out all my flyers. Hey, how'd you guys do? Yeah, we were at Lemoore's. We get rid of our flyers. How'd you guys do? Yeah. We hit up Bronx uh, train depot tonight. We handed out flyers at the uh, district nine show and we'd be like, okay, we did all promoting. We'll call everybody, you know, back then, Joe, you got on the phone, you, you called people last minute and you kind of made up a list in your head of who was coming down that night and you would know who made it and who didn't. But most people who confirmed they were coming to a big show were there in, in droves and didn't let you down and they didn't press going on a fucking uh, Facebook events page to only not even remotely go to the show that night. You know what I mean? So it was, uh, there was a pride back then where bands really love to be a reason for the show's success. And it wasn't for money. It was for pride and it was for props. And that's, and there was something to put a notch on their belt. So remember that DS side show? We drew half that crowd. Yeah, you did. You actually did. That's the truth. You know? No, and, and actually in modern time, there was an East coast tsunami and uh, East EGH are one of them bands that played. Yeah. And they did the same thing you talked about. They got a bus yep. and a shit ton of people came down for the show. And, and and so culturally, it seems like that's something that is stuck with that entire crop from when you said your first bus trip, even to the present. And that and that just comes from bands who want to work to bring their fans out and their people out to show the promoter like, yo, motherfucker, we're going to we're going to pack this room. Yep. And I think would you say that that was probably part of the impetus to put you towards wanting to manage these bands or you're just not seeing people from outside uh, Castle? taking interest beyond just as them playing live shows. Well, you know, me and John, the doorman would attend a lot of shows. Uh, you know, mentioned another guy who came up with me as a promoter, who's now a big shot uh, for live nation, you know, Christian McKnight, yes. uh, Christian young kid. When I met him, wasn't doing shows, booked his band cleanser a bunch of times. And I knew that he was, you know, up and coming in the scene and doing his own thing. Uh, I think it was a club called the P in Long Island back yeah. then. And there was a couple other places he was doing, of course, I would give him shows or some of his Long Island friend shows. He would give me shows and we would bring it to Long Island. And I know there was a bit of nervousness when uh, our bands would come down to Long Island, whether it was uh, Irate or Swan Enemy or EGS, because we, we had friends in Long Island, so we were drawing big. And I, I just remember back then, I don't ever remember having to sign my life away when I got an opportunity or anybody having to do it with me. In other words... Are they drawing 50 people? Are you willing to sign this and pay the difference if you don't? There was never none of that talk, Joe. It was, 
my word, my boys are going to bring it that night. And at the end of the night, put your arm on each other, go, well, we survived. Yeah, you guys did good tonight. Yeah, let me give you some money. And that's just the way it went. It wasn't like, okay, let me, let me, you know, figure out, let me get a forensic accountant here to figure out what you owe me. And I just, to me, it was just like, dude, take care of me. I look at the money. I go, I rate you guys cool with this. Yeah, it was cool. It wasn't, it was just so different back then. It was more carefree. And we knew when we do this for a living, if we get signed to a major label, we get a major agent, it's a different ball game for right now. It's a relaxed environment. We're loving what we're doing. We're selling some merch. We got a little bit of money. We were cool with it. And then every, again, once everything became so fucking business oriented and everyone became, oh, how am I going to pay for this? And who's going to cover this? Will you cover this? Will you, will you sign this? If this doesn't come through, will you guys buy these tickets or will they account for this amount of people? I didn't have to deal with any of that stuff back then. And we can get into how it's changed today with certain things, uh, with certain club owners and rules and regulations that I had to adhere to uh, today uh, being a different ball game. But back then, uh, word was bond and yeah did some bands flub it drop the ball when they got an opportunity not come through sure but there was no you know it, it just happened you know every now and then someone would drop the ball but most times everyone spiked the ball at the end of the night everyone if they got a big opportunity like i rate got to play with hatebreed or sworn enemy in long island and we made sure that we drew parents friends workmates guys from college guys who worked at the bagel store with us everybody was there because they knew it was a big deal for us so they wanted to be there and we did would tell the people who we knew shouldn't be just stand on the outside here and at the end of the night we we contributed the one thing that made me want to manage bands like that i rate sworn enemy first of all uh my relationship with those guys my relationship with sal from sworn enemy the singer from sworn enemy who you know uh was one of one of my dear friends probably one of my best friends in the scene uh forever anytime even when me and sal don't see each other for a while we wind up hanging out at the night at Blackthorn, go out to eat, hang out, drives me home. We bullshit around, you know, for hours at a time. Uh, Phil from Irate, one of my dear, dear friends. Nick from Irate. Uh, Gary from Billy Club Sandwich, one of my very good friends. Glenn. All these guys are, are amazing friends of mine. And when I clicked with them... <laughs> that I knew their work ethic and that they wanted opportunities. And I knew that I had connections that I could get them shows at a state. And I knew that they kicked ass. See, Joe, you know, it too. We can shine it on for certain people and say, Oh, this band is awesome. But when you know that the band is awesome and that they're going to bring it and that the kids in another neighboring state are going to like them, you feel confident to make that deal. Like, you know, you do favors too. I'm sure you do favors for people. You're like, God, I hope these guys don't let me down. But when I did favors for people back then, no one let me down. And Teddy tall and promoters like that guys from Boston would be like, Hey, yo, uh, Swan Enemy killed it tonight. When can they come back? I'm like, oh, 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 great. Okay. And I'd say, so would you guys did good? He goes, yeah, we killed it. We sold merch. So I was like, all right, great, great. And I just said to myself, I'm doing this outside booking thing and doing your favors. And then one day it was just like, Kev, you should manage. Even my brother Mike is telling me, why don't you manage these bands? Especially Irate is making a lot of noise and Swan Mindset. They were called Mindset then. Um, Swan Enemy, they were about to change the name. Uh, and I just, and I got along so good with it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'm doing this helping hand thing now. I might as well just manage them and book them. You know, it's a little, it's a, it's an extra source of, of a job or income. And then I'll have their back and I'm the guy who runs Castle Heights. So you knew that other promoters wouldn't screw them because I know the game. I know the business. So no one could mess with them or, you know, dick me around with attendance. They would give me accurate figures and facts of the show. And then, like I said, with Ted, Ted was like, listen, I got a band cutthroat really wants to get in your room. Uh, you do this for me. I'll do that for you. And I'll be like, okay, same thing. I can't remember the dude's name in Boston. I wish I could remember his name. Was it, uh, was it club one, two, one, or was it the rat? Uh, I think it was one, two, one. 
Um, that would be like Chris Punch the Clown or one of them guys. Yeah, yeah, Punch the Clown. That's a dude. Yeah. That's that. There you go. Thank you, dude. I couldn't remember that. I'm like, shit, I'm 52. I'm losing my memory already. But uh, Punch the Clown, dude, same thing. He gave Irate a show with 25 to Life uh, back then uh, in what, 97, 98. And regular thing. And we had Punch the Clown come down, play Castle Heights. He would book some of my bands out there. I made the trip to Boston several times with Irate out there in the van, which was an adventure in itself. And then we started doing the neighboring state stuff. We started playing Connecticut we started playing New Hampshire started doing and again it just started to snowball and uh, you know remember back then wasn't really big a lot of people didn't have computers but word of mouth about demos and irate's burden of a Carmelican society was a hot CD back then and people were really starting to, to, to really catch on to irate so I started getting offers in Canada I booked them their Canadian tour their first Canadian tour and I just started to latch on. Then Shutdown, who was already established uh, in 99, needed a manager because it was too much for my brother. It was becoming too much for him. And I was already had a lot of experience. They saw what I was doing with uh, Irate and Mindset. And I said, wow, if I can get Shutdown in my stable, that's a real established band. Shutdown had already been to Japan. They've been all, all over the world. And, you know, they're young kids. Well, this is my younger brother. So I started officially managing Shutdown. And they were on Victory at that point. They were putting out a brand new record. And uh, Few and Far Between, though it's their best stuff they put out uh and sal wound up doing a guest spot on there you know being affiliated with me and uh new it was new breed management which is such a name taken so many times over now and that's what we <laughs> call back that new breed and it's like so original i took it from a wrestling tag team from the nwa yeah. and uh so i had shut and i had like a nice stable and then on this and then i was helping five minute major i was helping billy club but i didn't officially manage those guys but i managed so one enemy i rate and shut down that was like a one two three punch and my phone and my fax were, were going off the hook 99 2000 2001 it was uh quite a time and and there was always shows we always were in play and um uh, it was it was a really good time and it became a job i was i was i was as busy as a manager as i was booking castle heights so it was a lot of fun too and again uh they were doing what they needed to do was making a great impression when they played anywhere and uh they would be invited back and then someone else would want to book them and um i got irate was on the cusp of a record deal but just things fell through with this meeting that we had with um a guy for a label and uh i think some guys got cold feet about signing contracts and that's really what happened and unfortunately um phil had left irate irate got a new singer at that point and then things changed for them now mindset turned to swan enemy and then jamie hapert took an interest in them of course and put out their record on his label and then irate got picked up by electra and you know Ozfest. so irate kind of got too big i mean swan enemy got too big for me and they started working with actually the guy we just mentioned before john finberg which i'm sure if you ask sal now that might not have been the best thing to do uh, at the time it was so i understood him having to go with a bigger uh, agent and manager it was no hard feelings with me and sal and again if there was it was totally water on the bridge so then i was just managing shutdown at one point which was full-time enough shut down one king down playing all over america i booked their tour in 2000 for few and far between and for one king downs album that had them at the time and they killed it on tour and it was great and i thought i'd probably go on to manage other bands but um then i stopped managing bands for a while and then i was full focused then 9 11 happened by the way around 2001 and uh you know we shut down operations for a couple of weeks and picked it right back up in October of that year. And Castle Lights was around about just another year and a half. Like I said, Castle Lights closed in uh, uh, last week in November, 2002. So that's kind of like chronicling what was going on then. When Castle Lights closed, 
do you feel like that some of the bands never had a shot at the next rooms that were available to them? Or do you think that was also just like, because the bands like converge and American nightmare, like hardcore had started to shift. What do you think uh, about that whole time frame? And if it hurt castle Heights bands because castle Heights wasn't there, or do you think it wasn't as in- impactful? Well, Castle Lights, I got word that we tried to stay open, but the landlord just was done with us. He wanted a different thing there. He didn't want a club there anymore, uh, whether it was liabilities or whether he just he jocked up the rent too much that Frank couldn't pay it. So Frank gave me a heads up in, um, in August that Castle Lights would probably close in November. So what did I do? The promoter mind I had, uh, what happened was I was planning a bunch of shows, big, big shows for the next few months. Then uh, Frank comes up to me in um, October and said, um, I got to shut it down at the end of this month. I'm like, what? And I just remember going fucking ape shit. The landlord's knocking. This is where like some fast talking and, and having, you know, some influence on the situation worked because Castle Lights would have closed before Halloween had it gone the landlord's way and Frank not fought it. I said, Frank, you promised me till the end of November. I got shows booked. What are you doing? You're killing me here. So he's like, no, I know. And I, and I sold them on. I was like, get, you know, whatever it takes. Can you go back and tell him we're committed? We're under contracts with people. Whatever you got to say, whatever you got to do, please. And he just looks at me. I go, Frank, everyone here is, you know, there's no, no one's getting unemployment insurance here. You know, back then the day, Joe, everybody worked off the books. Yeah. So I was like, I says, everybody's ass out of a job. Frank, you got to extend it, please. I was like, do whatever it takes. He just looks at me. He goes, all right. I'm going to go to him again. I'm going to tell him where we have contracts with these national acts and I'll lose my ass. If I don't honor them, I have to lose all deposits. I'm like, right. That's what you say. You want me to go? He goes, no, no, I'll handle it. Comes back to me. He goes, all right, you got your way. He goes, all right, we got till the end of November. He goes, so do whatever you want with the room. I booked every night. I booked seven nights a week. I had everybody play for us. Every band you can think of doing one last show, Mastodon, everybody burnt by the sun, everybody coming back for one last ride. Uh, the problem that that happened towards the last days of Castle Heights was the fact that people knew the club was closing down. What I didn't know and what I thought, because we had a great community and we most people were looking out for us, no doubt. But what we had was a lot of nonsensical bullshit going on and people misbehaving because the club was going out of business. You know what I'm saying, Joe? It's like, well, the club's going out. But I'm like, yeah, but we'd like to make it to the last day, guys. Let's not. Yeah, let's uh, sit down. Not- yeah, make it work. You know, exactly. I mean, there was that kind of little bit of element there. And actually, it, it wound up hurt. John Doorman wound up getting severely hurt during a show, breaking up a fight at a hardcore show. John got a ruptured spleen. John missed the last week of Castle Lights. He was in the hospital. That, that was on, on home rush. Yeah, John. So John's brother, Mike, Mike SOS, who was the DJ at Castle Lights, he stepped up, filled in for John. So my last uh, seven shows there were without John. No John the Doorman. We had William, who's our backup guy. But it, was, it sucked that John wasn't there for the final ride full-blown chaos his last show a bunch of big shows john missed his own brother playing there john was severely severely hurt john was lucky uh that it, it wasn't worse than what it was john was in the icu uh he took a bad kick to the uh bread basket and wound up rupturing his spleen and he was bleeding internally it was, it was pretty bad breaking up a fight uh and it was none of the bands fault, but there was some outsiders there from uh out of state and from other areas people we did not recognize uh even if you see the video uh, of certain shows and stuff i didn't recognize half the people in the pit it attracted some not so nice element and people were like ah, oh, this club's closing down and let's fuck shit up and um again once one of our big soldiers went down 
uh it was it was not good and there was like a real sad vibe towards the end with john not being there what had happened to john and the place shutting down um you know our final hardcore show was not all it could be it actually ended early it got cut off uh you know some bands didn't even get to play on the dark side didn't even get to play that night on the final hardcore show that sucked um and uh that's you know we did rock shows for the rest of the week and some metal shows which did go on but uh we 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 uh, unfortunately didn't end with such a good bang on the final night of uh cast lights but i'm glad that most people don't look at that and say oh that's what i remember people say oh yeah that's right i remember that incident but that wasn't to them that's not what the defining moment of castle heights thank god when i talk to people no one even brings it up but it was how we ended if i'm being honest and i wanted to be totally honest on this interview and not you know glory days stuff too much where there wasn't the problems that we had you know what happened to john what happened to frank unfortunately from fahrenheit in 97 uh, there were things that happened in New York nightlife. These things in nightlife in any major city, these things are going to happen. You can't control certain elements that come in or out of the club. Uh, you can only uh, try and, you know, corral people's behavior in the, in, in like secure, like once you leave the club, you know, what's going to happen. But in the club that night, uh, things just got out of hand. And because people were just going crazy in them, some people, because there was in celebration, but some people probably to start shit. And there, there's no doubt that's what happened. Well, I also think that the culture at the time had shifted away. Yeah. Especially in the uh, early 2000s. There was a culture of hardcore people that legitimately could handle what it was to be in the pit, hit hard, get hit. And then it started shifting out, and, and there was newer people who were vehemently towards, I'm starting problems. Not, hey, I'm going to go off. I want to start a problem with this person. And you saw it yeah. more, you saw, you saw it more directly, mm-hmm. you saw it more maliciously, and you saw it with, the completely unhinged. I don't care about this place. I don't like. There was never that respect that came, and I, and that was definitely a turn into the o one o two, and and it got worse throughout the decade with people who were not around, not recognized, and they're the main provocators of some shit that really just impacted everybody. But I think when you when you when you talk about the truth, and and that's you know from a promoter point of view. We're not going to look at everyone's face because we see the we see the downside, you know. Like yeah. John's your main man, John. I, you know, John was a staple, so you're going to always look at it from a different point of view than say someone who was just happy to have Castle, you know. So it, it's important that you know, and I and I do it all the time on my shows. One thing will go bad, I'm like, oh man, and I'm like, no one even noticed that, or that's not the whole thing. And for me, all week I'll be bummed, like, man, that show could have been so good, but this one thing happened. So I, I relate I relate to your uh, stress on it, but I, I definitely think that people look back at Castle Heights and, and especially now with the internet and with all the videos, there there's nothing but I would say a uh, a reverence for the place. And I and that's really the basis of wanting to talk to you because it wouldn't have been the same way if had you not been the person, you know? And I, I think that a lot of people would say that. In fact everybody you you um, just mentioned would say that. So yeah, I no, be too, I wouldn't be too hard on yourself about that. Oh no, I appreciate, I appreciate, I appreciate that. I mean, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't have done it without like you know, John was a main guy there, and actually, it's funny if uh, John would probably get on me about this, but uh, when he hears this, but to be accurate, we actually knew who the guy was who hit John by accident. But John was breaking up a fight with some people from out of state, and then somebody coming at John who we knew and he was very apologetic to John. I'm sure he didn't mean to do it. I know over the years uh, he's uh, tried to atone for it with John uh, who ended up giving the kick that hurt John was a guy that was from Castle Heights, but it was uh, John trying to break up uh, some stuff 
And uh, so John wants me to probably be accurate about that. It wasn't a person from out of state who hit me. It was actually someone from the club. I'm like, I know, even though, again, that's it's water under the bridge. It was 18 years ago. I can't even believe how long ago. I mean, I remember like uh, yesterday, it was funny. I was hanging out with, you know, full-blown chaos. Yeah. You know, Ray, those guys. Ray actually, Ray from full-blown was actually working for us uh, doing bouncing at that point. At the end, I was hired all hardcore guys at that point. Uh, Ray was doing bounce for us. I was hanging out with the uh, full-blown chaos guys uh, the, the final night. And the guys from, I don't know if you know the band, Enwell, um, who were, uh, were on a label for a while. Um and I remember that night again, 18 years, it just shows you how fast things go by. And again, you know, I can take credit for a, a bunch of things, but without the the crew that I had, John, Jay, the sound man, Glenn, Gary, Kerry, uh, Frank and uncle Louie, who passed away, by the way, the co-owner of uh, Castle Heights died a couple of years ago. Uh, Frank got out of the business. Everyone always asked me what happened to the owner of uh, Frank, uh, Frank Castle. I said, well, Frank moved upstate. He's still married. He was married to someone who was in the industry. His wife actually works for, you know, Ziggy Marley, Bob Marley's son. Yeah. Ziggy Marley of music, uh, Doreen. She's worked for Ziggy for years and years. So Frank had an in in the industry with his wife working for Island Records for many, many years. Uh, they're still married. They live upstate. Uh, Frank's got uh, an older daughter in her 20s, who I believe is married now. And as Frank's a grandfather and as a young kid, Frank is way out of the business. Anytime I get to talk to him over the years, very sporadically here and there over the last few years, uh, just you're still doing it. You're still doing this, Kev. And it's like, yeah, he goes, oh, he goes, I, I don't even, I can't remember when the last time we did a show. And uh, again, he's been out of it for a long time, but he is amazed by the, the again, the, uh, the, uh, the memories that people have for Castle Nights. I always try and make them understand. And uh, even his, uh, his people tell him, he's like, oh, dude, you should do a Castle Heights. Ah, no one cares. I'm like, dude, you have no idea. Again, he um, he wasn't part of the hardcore culture. He was a metalhead and a rock guy. But I think even he didn't even really understand what it meant to people until the closing night and people in tears are coming up to him. And we, I just see more hardcore guys crying that night uh, than I've ever seen before. That's the one thing I'll say on, on a note. Um, the Gallo brothers, you know, of course, Mike Gallo. Yeah from uh, Agnostic Front, who was a band, a band called On The Rise. Mike and Steve, his brother Steve, who was also an AF at one time, uh, were staple mates at Castle Heights. Their dad, they used to be there all the time with their dad and hanging out. They were young guys. And I remember them being at the back door. They wanted to get in. We were having just a closed door thing. And they were at the back and we let them in. And uh, just the, the, the again, the uh, what that club meant to people uh, was unbelievable. As a matter of fact, I saw Mike do an interview not too long ago where he was talking about his favorite club and everyone's expecting him to say CBGBs. He said Castle Heights. He's like, that's that was my my school. That's where I grew up. That's I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that club. And I was so glad that he said that because again, and no bitterness from me, Joe. And I'm so grateful that you let me do this tonight because again, I me and John have always felt uh, and no shots at anybody or anything like that. And there's no bitterness, but me and John have always felt uh, not exactly appreciated by uh the grand spectrum of of certain people and the powers that be at hardcore uh whether it's certain promotions or other clubs or legendary bands because i don't know i think they understood what castle Ice was but since they weren't regulars there they didn't really grasp what it meant for that next generation those bands that were opening for them all honed their craft and skills at castle heights they were not born and raised out of sea beach they were born and raised out of our club and queens is a legendary place for hardcore people i mean even isaac isaac lived two blocks away from castle heights see him walking his pit bull by the club like every night hey what's up so it's like he lived right over there so again but i'm saying other places that chronicle hardcore and do these memories and me and john go they mentioned castle heights nope nope 
I go the, the, the way the ECW where like, you know, to the fans, we meant everything to certain other people were on the pay no mind list and not out of disrespect. I think that they really don't get it. And I think that I hope if anybody listens to this tonight from the old school is like, yeah, you know, I really didn't know like how really Castle had all these hate breeds record release and all these bands and Mastodon started out there. I didn't know this. Yeah, maybe you didn't know it. Maybe that's why you thought we were just a little hole in the wall, did a few shows, had a couple of fights. There was a couple of bands that had some props, but they didn't know. I mean, a 10-year run, I think, is pretty fucking respectable, Joe. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Especially for a venue of that size. I mean, for me, when 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 you said about no respect, the issue and it's something that well, I wouldn't say no respect. No, no, I, would well, say, I, I would say I would say underrated. I'd say we're criminally right. underrated. Yeah. What what I meant to say is, um, at that time frame, whether it was in the mid '90s, even in the early 2000s, there was a specific subset of people in different areas of hardcore. Whether you're, a, I'm an Earth Crisis guy. I'm a Floor sure. Punch guy. I'm a Converge guy. And the kind of fucking hardcore that, like, you know, was synonymous with Castle Heights, the sworn enemies, you know, the hate breeds before they got big, yeah. you know, EGH, Irie, uh, even with Punishment and Death Threat. Uh, and, and I have a friend who's going to be on the podcast uh, and, and in a later time spoke on the same kind of stuff where it's like we didn't get respect. We were looking as the other hardcore. Right. Uh, well, that's the that's the other hardcore. So even right, though right. even though you could drive from whether it was Massachusetts or Virginia up to New York and get respect at Castle Heights, the people close, uh, I'm not going to go to that club or oh, you don't want your band to play there. Yeah. And it was silly because the layout was perfect. It sounded good and, and the bands got treated well. And so I think that it's not so, it is, it is part of the legacy of not just Castle Heights, but a ton of bands and, and not just New York, but Pennsylvania had a ton of problems with that. You know, the yeah. entire Northeast, like, be it crutch strength for reason, even later on with wisdom and chains, um, a ton of the bands from Massachusetts that you brought up Albany bands, the same thing. There was this whole different look and feel about some of the harder stuff where people felt like that's not my kind of hardcore. Yeah. And then, but um, I mean, I, I imagine by the time 2002 came around, there were probably already euros that were traveling to see castle Heights show. Oh yeah, yeah. We had a lot of uh and speaking of two other bands I didn't mention and one one in the same in a way, uh Out to Win and Mushmouth played for yeah. me so so many times at Castle Heights. I can't even count on my fingers how many times Mushmouth and then Out to Win played for us. And uh it was another band, uh I don't know if it was from around that way. Uh Clubber Lang, remember Clubber Lang? Yeah, Clubber Lang, that's our band. Yeah, we yeah. all came up then. Club we came Lang, up with yeah. them for that show. That's right. Club and Lang was another band. Strength for a reason played for us. Uh, God, I mean, uh, all those bands, but out to win and Mushmouth, I have to say they, they were part of the extended Castle Heights family. They clocked in. It was almost like you ever see Saturday Night Live and they uh, do a skit with the five timers when you host five times uh, yeah. Saturday Night Live. I can give uh, Mushmouth out to win a five timer jacket. So they, 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 they did the five timer. They, again, started out as a mid-level, came in in the middle of the card and then became a headliner at Castle Heights. So that was cool. What? That's that's a big part of that hardcore scene. And, yeah. and, you know, we were all, whether, you know, like uh, the guys who would eventually be in Death Before Dishonor, they were in other one-to-one bands. Like there's all these bands that were all into the same style. And Castle Heights was probably the longest running, most structured club that kept all that together. Yeah. And, and I think that's part of where the legacy comes in. And then now we're talking with 18 years of the internet, <laughs> there's so Jeez. many kids whose entire there's an uh, entire bands now who are nowhere near New York city, nowhere near the age to wow. say they went to castle heights, but their entire thing is like, 
I want to say like I had kids like I just want my band to sound like a Castle Heights kind of band. That's amazing, and, right? Yeah. And it's a sur- it's a surreality, and they're like, "Would you ever go to a show there?" I'm like, "Yeah, we played there, we went there," and they're like, it, "The place looked crazy." I'm like, "It was a small bar with a really cool room that people got kicked in," you know, like, and it's not to downplay it, but it's like it, it wasn't this. It wasn't meant to be a palatial place. It was meant to oh. be. It was meant to fit the amount of people that knew about them bands and were most psyched. So I'm not surprised that, the, especially Mike Gallo, because, you know, uh, before he ended up uh, joining AF, you know, like mm-hmm. he was a staple outside of that place every time we would be. Oh, there. yeah. Him Whether on the Ryan plays yeah. or, yeah, and, and yeah, Steve too, which just that was the other part is you knew if you went to Castle, even if the guys from those bands weren't playing, they were hanging out there, you know. Uh, Glenn from BCS is a dude who's been, and a lot of these castle guys now come to my, this hardcore fest every summer. Oh yeah. Gary. And, and, uh, yeah, yeah. All those guys. Yeah. You know? Um, and I, I it's it just a testament to what you guys built and it actually kept these people involved. A lot of times when people, when something like a castle falls apart, you know, like in Pennsylvania, there were CCs at another time, there were smaller like DIY clubs here. When them clubs fall apart, that whole social culture breaks and they don't jump on to the next thing. Whereas, all these guys are still engaged. All these guys are still involved, whether just in bands or supporting bands, but they never gave up. And I think it's because of where they were grounded at, which, you know, for you guys was Castle Heights. So that's a testament as well. Yeah. I mean, um, even a, another shout out. You remember, there's an old name. You'll remember four in the chamber who are yeah. uh, four in the chamber. Dave, Dusty, who, right? you know, yeah, Dave, Dusty, Onita. Dave's one of my best friends. Uh, I guess he's almost like, he's like a brother to me. And I'm his I'm manager of his band uh, apparition who you, Dave, uh, you, you, before. you, yeah, that was the other thing I want to bring up. Is like we're still doing what we did then. Yeah, hey, we're still Joe, doing. You to, the, the, yeah. Hey, hey Joe, can you look out for them? And you know, they came, they killed it. We, you know, when when things open up, they're going to be coming back. Oh, I and, love that. They would love and, that. And that's well, that's our culture. You know, that's this is what we do. We trade each other shows. You know, hey, look out for this guy. Hey, look out for that. That's what we were built on. So. Oh yeah, I mean, um, yeah, Dave, up, yeah, you know? yeah. Shout out to Dave. Dave's like so late in the show. You shouted me out, um, <laughs> but Dave, see, Dave, I got you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you even one more right now. He's, he's a real hardcore warrior. Dave's in the scene about 30 years. He goes back uh, to the, to the old days with my brother, and I've known him for years, and we went to wrestling together, and we're you know wrestling buddies, and uh, outside of, of show stuff. And uh, again, I was uh, you know getting back to the manager thing. I got back into management a couple of years ago. And I started working with Dave and with Apparition. First time I'm ever managing a female, female fronted band, Marlo. Shout out to Marlo too. And to Gian and to Tracy and everybody who's definitely going to be listening to this. Uh, um, And they're great people to work with. And again, I didn't think I had the management bug in me anymore. But working with Dave and working with them, and I I like the aspect of working with a female fronted hardcore band, something new and different for me. And I also work with another band uh, called Damn Your Eyes, which uh, Artie Alexander was a longtime member for Harley and Harley's uh, band Cro-Mags. Uh, Artie is a band called Damn Your Eyes. They're a metal band. Great, fantastic band. And again, these bands just caught my ear and my eye and I get along. Again, the friendship thing. Me and Artie are great friends. Me and Dave are really close friends. And it's easy to uh, you make the decision to say, you know what? It's not going to be the same anymore. It's a little bit different. And Lord knows we can get into the whole COVID thing. Uh, COVID knocked us out of the game now for six months and we're just kind of 
those bands are rehearsing all the time, both AMUIs and Apparition, and they are show ready. When we are ready to go, they are ready to go because Apparition has never stopped. Uh, Four in the Chamber, by the way, is reunited, and they will be playing shows in 2021. I was going to hit you up about that, having Four in the Chamber come down to Philly, and we had a big show scheduled here in August, big reunion show at Lucky 13. We're going to pack the place, sell it out, and, of course, COVID knocked us out of the game. Four in the Chamber had a big comeback this August, first time in years playing together. We're mostly original lineup, original singer and uh yeah no and we got knocked out the box so but uh yeah i'm just managing two bands right now and and uh, as far as a manager goes apparition and damn your eyes working with a rock band called rider it's a little bit of a different thing but uh as far as heavy bands go bringing me back to the days of it's it's a little bit different again it's it's a different ball game now but uh i treat it the same way where uh, I look out for the bands like they're they're my they're my blood relatives, and I think that's when you could do the best job because their best interest is your best interest. And if you get along personally as well as professionally, uh, you'll have a long ride together. You know what I mean? If things don't work out, they don't work out, but you leave off as friends, which I've always done with bands that I even used to manage. I haven't been Sworn Enemies manager in years, but we see each other. It is a love fest. You know what I mean? There is uh, because we were together during a time that was a really good time in the scene, and we we cherish the memories you know what i mean well i think with sore and enemy specifically they're one of these bands that you know were obviously i, I had the seven inch that still said mindset they're one of these oh, bands yeah. that came up at that and in, in that jo- generation and actually we had them a couple years ago it was the first time we had them out of this hardcore and say i not really been like hey how come you don't like you know, do you not you don't like us or something but i wanted them to have the set that would make them feel like, fuck yeah, we played a fest, you know, like, right. and we did sworn enemy at the fest, like two, I think it was like two fests ago and they fucking killed it. And it made yeah. me so happy because they're one of the bands as I was starting a book that I got, I was excited just to have them on the bill and you never want to bring a band down and not give them like that moment, you know? And that's possibly why sometimes we'd say no to some bands. We don't want it to be lesser than their own expectations. But Sal is one of the people that throughout this whole time, has always been a smile, hug, hey, hello. And I, I'm, I'm psyched that you guys are still cool, even though that, you know, things changed. Did you have, because you said mentioned this, that you had a good relationship with um, with Dusty. Did you have a great relationship with Irate? And then once they started having their issue, did you manage to keep that same kind of like good relationship or just how did that work out with Irate? Because I know they're one of these like dream bands for so many kids. Everyone's like, dude, you got to get irate. And I'm like, I don't think oh, they're ever going to play again. My God. I mean, they are the most in demand. I was their manager for a long time. Believe me, people have made endways through me to try and talk them into doing reunion. I've had promoters hit up me and says, money is no object. Get them back together, whatever they want. And it's funny because again, we never really went to that level, but we went to this legendary status level. And when I say we, I mean the, the guys in the band and us as a unit and me managing them, uh, they were definitely a hot hand at one point and again everybody wanted to play with them i remember my brother mike who was always kind of particular playing with certain metal bands and inhuman back in the day so can we get on the irate show i'm like dude everybody wants to get on the irate show uh because they knew when they played with irate there was going to be uh it was just going to be a a great time and the great thing about irate was even whether they were headlining whatever they would phil and jay the old lineup i especially phil was in the pit for every band and he had to perform he had to perform as a headliner and he's in the pit doing cartwheels i'm like 
dude, what are you doing? Like, you, and it's, I'm just, I used to find it funny and like, where's the single fry rate? I go, he's right there jumping off the stage. And it's like, you know, he's on next. I'm like, yeah, I know. And I'm like, maybe you should just stay there. And then the band could just change over equipment and Phil could just hang out on stage. But it was, that was the great thing. I rate didn't think they were bigger than anybody. They supported everybody. They went in the pit for everybody. They were, you know, they, they, they were all in, all in. And that's what I think. They weren't pretentious. They weren't like, yeah, where they had like, even I remember E-Town talking to Anthony and he's like, not for nothing. I rate you the headline tonight. And I'm like, thanks. So it's now hometown. He's like, I wouldn't have mind going on before them. And he literally said that to me, but then I said to Anthony, give him your money. Well, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. That's always the next question. Oh, yeah, we're gonna do that. Well then, yeah, we'll switch the money. Up. Yeah. And I love Van Shad. And I, I get along great with Anthony and, and, uh, and those guys, uh, from, uh, E-Town concrete, uh, you know, and to go back with them nine 95 and, uh, did a lot of stuff with them. And when I teamed up with Irate, you're batting down the hatches at Castle Heights and everyone's like, you really don't need more than Irate and E-Town. Like even my cat, Frank Castle would be like, uh, how many bands are on that bill? I go, well, there's one band opening up. He goes, yeah, let, let's just leave it at that because we don't need more than that. And I was like, yeah, no, nah, I know. And John would say the same thing. He goes, oh, God, I better get some sleep. But it was fun. And again, it was one of those things that you knew you could depend on a blockbuster night at the bar, at the door. Everybody was happy. And those bands loved playing together. And we did the same thing with God Forbid before they became a national act with Doc and Doyle's band who came down. Now, they weren't a hardcore band, but we put them with Irate at one point because Irate was obviously more metal. So Irate could mix it up and play with different bands. But my thing, you would talking about irate is phil was in the pit for shutdown and then realized that kevin castle was actually kevin scandato and i'm related to the singer mark who we idolized and and to this day they are such good friends phil and mark when uh phil's in florida he goes to see mark and vice versa and phil's got a brand new band by the way nights at a black table you'll be hearing yeah. a lot about soon uh so um phil was a fan of shutdown was in the pit and i remember he was in irate and mark's like uh, i love those guys in irate he goes maybe you should work with them and uh he's like you're mark's brother i'm like yeah he goes i thought you were kevin castle i'm like no it's a nickname i'm kevin scandato that's uh, my brother so he's like oh you know and that's how we got to be friends and again i thought phil was such an engaging nice guy for a guy who sung such brutal music i thought he was gonna be thuggish and you know what i mean and kind of like off-putting but he was super friendly real huggy hugging and emotional type of guy and i said yeah i like this guy a lot and then i got to get in the and the guitar playing with nando and those guys in that band are so amazing they are amazing uv rays the drummer i think is one of the best drummers in this in the scene i've ever seen these guys i think could have joined bigger bands as hired guns they never did you know they had other lives and and responsibilities and stuff they never took the music business too seriously i think but if they really really wanted to go for it they could have got that brass ring i think just things happened uh with that band and some unfortunate things and some things that weren't in their control but i rate if you ask me about a can't miss who or a band that should have hit that level definitely would be irate and no respect to uh billy club who's still an amazing band egh is an amazing band sworn enemy who was sal's toward the world 10 times over uh I could, and you were talking about sal one of the nicest most charming real guys in the scene if you can depend on one guy joe be sal sworn enemy he's a man of his word and he takes pride in being good business and a decent human being and you can't say that about too many people i mean you know everyone's a nice guy until they're not a nice guy you know what i mean um but sal is one of those guys just a, a a great person, Glenn from Billy Club, amazing human beings. And I doesn't that, that's why we're still friends to this day. Because I would we would if it was just a bullshit thing based on how you can draw and what money you make for me, what I can do for you. Uh, we don't need each other anymore. See ya. And we have kept touch over the years. And I work with Glenn on small shows in Brooklyn where I was promoting a show at Gold Sounds when I'd walk in the back, I see this afro and I'm like, Glenn. 
he looks at me and goes, what the fuck are you doing here? I goes, my show. The guy had hired uh, Glenn to work that night. And we talked for seven hours straight, I think. And just uh, reminisced. I hadn't seen him in a while. And, and again, um, there's a great, great bond with Castle Heights, quote unquote, people. You know, I mean, 8311 crew, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I love all those guys. I mean, I can't say enough good things about all those guys. Never a crossword between any of us. Never. So with the end of irate, um, and, and that's something that kids are always like, you know, they got to come back. And I'm like, you know, yeah. some bands don't have to come back, but yet we, we saw the return of Billy club. And I'm going to tell you, I seen it in Pennsylvania, Chicago, and in Philadelphia <laughs> and the kids now I, I, it's amazing how, how much kids go off. And, uh, I, I, I hope that you understand that. It, it, it didn't lose anything. In fact, I think it's awesome that they took time away because yeah. now they come back. And, and I mean, I'll send you a video then from this article. It was nuts, man. And they're just like one of these, again, like you said, most affable people, thankful, happy to be able to play. And, and funny, yeah, funny, friendly, like just everything uh, as a promoter you want to deal with. You know, I mean, just as a guy, and you already knew of them and knew them already, Joe. And they, of course, have great respect for you. So, you know, they would have to be some crazy situation to have any kind of problem with those guys. But, but again, they, they just, uh, they're in the game. They're all pros. You know, I mean, I wish more bands would follow their cue of modern day of this is how you act, this is how you conduct yourself, this is how you mingle with other bands. You watch other bands, you socialize, you don't go in a brooding corner and hold your arms and wait for you to play. And then you walk out the door. That's not how you play this game. And if you play that game this way, you're not going to be not only not fondly remembered, no one's going to give a, you know, no one's going to give a fuck. So again, I think there's still a despite technology and everybody texts you still have to be interactive with people at shows you still have to engage you still have to conversate uh that's never going to go away i mean i always think that that's both i've talked to bands go yeah i don't talk to people on the phone i'm like Ugh. I, go, I just i hear that i'm like what does that even mean like oh i don't even talk to my you know i just text that's all i do because there's times that i insist of bands that i don't know and we can talk about what i'm doing today but um, uh, again, that I insist on having conversations with people I don't know. I, I you know, I have some questions for people, and I don't want to write a fucking essay on a text. So I'm still. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a phone guy. If yeah, I'm a want, phone guy. Me, me too, dude. If, if, if you want something, if you want something done, get on the phone. I don't have forty texts. I, oh. I, I, I can't interpret. I can't interpret tone. And I think what you said is important. Uh, even with the internet, even with social media apps, personality interactions, hanging out. One of the key things that I think people should take away again, that I always say the kids in hardcore are also the bands on stage and the bands on stage are also the kids. So you telling us that I rate we're in stage on stage one minute, all stage motion. That's, that's the, to me, that's, that's the foundation of hardcore. And I, I can remember that and for a ton of castle bands, whether it was the EGH guys, mm-hmm. whether it was RIP Paulie out there k- kicking people, oh, yeah. Yeah. you know, like yeah. there was a, there was an awesome, like a moment where it was cool to be on stage and seeing the guys in the bands that are playing next moshing for your band. And and that's a key element that is also sort of lost where everybody just wants to stand behind a band or, you know, they'll take one picture and then they're off jerking off. And it's like, it's the interactions in the social commonwealth of like, Hey, I know this guy because we hung out and had a conversation about this and I know him well enough to talk to him. And, and, and it's not the internet world. And that's where I think a lot of these newer bands and they don't have to be young people. They just newer bands from this era don't do enough real life communication. And that's where they fall short. 
I think that's the whole thing too. I mean, even working, you're doing modern day. And like I said, sometimes I feel like someone even, I even said to someone the other day, am I still in show business? I don't even know. I haven't worked a show in six months. I'm like, am I still in show business? Um, I think I am when I, we return, I'm supposed to still be in it. But uh, again, it's um, I think with bands and I try and, 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 you know, listen, I think it's a 50, 50 thing. I'll run into 20 something or late teen, early twenties bands who will listen to me and say, Hey, my father or my uncle still to castle Heights. They told me, Oh, Kevin Cassidy, listen to him. He's good advice there'll be other people who don't want to hear it just like kind of a millennial shithead attitude of like yeah that was the old days no this the day you know uh you know bands are uh are much more they, they try and make like they're much more business savvy and i'm like you don't even know the business because paying dues is part of the business you know being respectful and 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 doing things properly is business you know again uh People, we call it the brood factor when a band has not so good set and they stand in the corner and they're mad and they sulk. And me and John call it like this brooding factor. And I'm like, oh, this band's got boo-boo face. And I'm like, yeah, boo-boo face. They, they, <laughs> again, they, they, they blame uh, the club. Oh, yeah, I don't know where the people were tonight. I'm like, did you promote? We made an events page. I'm like, yeah. guys, you got to fucking do more than that. And I, again, the streets. Stop- Hit the sh- and again, get on your phone, call people. I don't call people. Well, maybe you should have called people. And if you called and made the importance of how important it was to come out to the show, you wouldn't have played the five people tonight. It's not on the club. It's on you because now the second band is on and 50 people just walked through the door. So what did they do different than you did? Well, they're on later than us. They got a better spot. No, you're coming up with excuses. And again, if this makes you feel better and you leave the club blaming everybody but yourself, fine. But that runs out of steam by the third show because then your band's going to turn around and go we flopped here we flopped in our hometown we flopped there uh what are we doing wrong here i, I would hope that someone in the band goes yeah this is not working what are we doing wrong here every day again i uh, i have no problem admitting hey band had a shit time spot or hey band had to open the show tonight it was an early time people didn't come out but you know you get them next time but you still be professional and just like and again you see this oh i don't know if we're going to come back i'm like why well you know they didn't like us who didn't like you there was nobody here to not like you what do you mean who didn't like you well, you know, people didn't come out. I go, well, try again. You try again. I'll give you a later spot. Again, I try to almost like I'm in a coaching aspect. I'm like, if I like a band, I'm John's like, the band's not bad though. You know, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give them another show, give them a better part of the upper card, see if they can bring it. Now, if they fail that time and they don't bring it, then I'll know it's the band. It was, you know, sometimes circumstances. And again, I try and pep talk everybody. I'm not one of these guys like, Oh, you guys draw you know, I'm never booking them again. Like act like a promoter with boo boo face, which I can't stand when promoters act as bad as the bands. Uh, because you know, in this business show, you know, you make money, you lose money, you break even. And sometimes all you can hope, for is break even you know what i mean um but again you have to kind of suck it up too and if it's a bad night you can't walk around the club looking like you're you know this is a flop just gotta fucking do what you gotta do and uh, we have on nights where we have that and sometimes hey it could be a headliner that actually bombed out they a band that used to have props and nobody came out to see tonight but we're all in this together we win together we fail together and that was always been my mentality of any club i worked at uh some people don't have that mentality joe to be honest with you and i try not to work with people like that to be honest with you well they're a downer you know and it's yeah. it's not it's not a uh, partnership like you like we win together, we lose together. And that's a part of what this whole thing is like, yeah. Hey, I don't, I don't know you from Adam, but I like the band. Hey, let's see if we can't make something work. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the internet interaction phase where, well, I posted this song and I had X amount of people click on this. So exactly. Right. And, and it's like, and, and you touch on it briefly with the Facebook pages. It's like events page, right? Yeah. If, if you think, if you think for a minute <laughs> that that has any kind of real metric, 
like it, it's 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 asinine. I mean, it's an important factor. Uh, luckily, with uh, what what I do with the fest and what I do with the Philly hardcore shows is Chris and Kevin. They deal with all the social media stuff because oh, not that I don't have the time, but it's just it's annoying to go through the nuances of the. Hey, can you send me what you know the 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 set list or you know the time? And I'm like, just show up. First band at this time. Last band is after that. It gets so frustrating for me. So, oh god, I know. I I I, 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 I sublet that out to somebody else. Um, <laughs> so Castle closes, right? But you're still doing Blackthorn, and then. Oh no! Well, I mean, I, I I'll make this the Reader's Digest quick version. After Castle Heights, uh, I I was kind of uh, wondering what our next move was going to be. Uh, there was a club called Tipperary Arms in Flushing, Queens, that Mike, John the Doorman's brother, got us in that room. Couldn't do hardcore there because it was a small room. So we did rock and metal there. And I subletted shows out of a club called Red Zone. I don't know if you remember in Middle Village, there was a club called Red Zone that did hardcore shows from Fuse to Lack got closed down in Middle Village, Queens. Uh, I did Sunday shows there. I did Death Before Dishonor there. I, I brought out the win, old uh, reliable guys in, in that band. I brought them over there. That was 2003, 2004. By 2005, that club was closed. I wound up going to Manhattan and working for a pretty well-known club called the Continental in Manhattan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a booker there for a year. Uh, we had a great time there, booked a lot of great shows. They didn't allow me to do hardcore because they had an incident there uh, before I got there. Nothing to do with me. But <laughs> as the owner said, uh, and I laugh at this, some people might- You inherited that. Me. You inherited that. I, I inherited that. And he goes, uh, listen, Kev, I know you are and stuff, but none of that Castle Heights bullshit. And I just laughed out <laughs> loud when he said that. And I said, no Castle Heights bullshit? He goes, no uh, Castle Heights bullshit. And I was like- um, so that would be the hardcore bullshit. He goes, no hardcore bullshit, all the other bullshit you could do. And I laughed and I just said, I thought it was, I was like offended by it. I thought, I thought it was funny. And I worked there for a year and he goes, it's too bad you didn't come here soon. I would have used you. He goes, but check this out. I want you, you and John are really great guys. I have a friend who runs Acme Underground. It's called Ace of Clubs on Lafayette Street. I told him to expect your call. So they situated me, uh, the guys at the door and the guys who worked at Continental to show me and John get another job at another club when they were closing down. Cause he's like, you guys should bring your act somewhere else. Go bring it to this guy, Bill. He's his name. His real name's Joey, but he, he's, they call him Bill's his nickname. So I went over there and I was Acme underground. I knew all about the club. I went and met Bill and I was at eight and it was called Ace of Clubs. And we wound up being at Ace of Clubs for five years. Uh, so we were at Ace of Clubs for five years. And then fucking you know the gentrification all the stuff that goes on in the city and selling buildings you know to millionaires and knocking things down and kicking people out of their rent space ace of clubs got abruptly closed in uh 2011 and then in 2012 i'm wondering what i'm going to do where i'm going to go and i get a call from a, a a mutual female friend of mine who's friends with a guy named nikki camp it's a pretty infamous famous guy in the scene some people like him some people don't we don't have to get into that but uh, and she says, you and Nikki should team up together. He's opening up a club in Queens. I said, really? Because we used to be enemies, me and Nick, and you know, we, we were not friendly uh, for the longest time. We were, we were civil, but we were, we were on different sides of the fence. Um, and I said, uh, where is this going to be? And she's like, listen, you know, you're looking for a job? I'm like, yeah, I was looking for a job. I, I, for the first time, I was ass out of work in the club industry. And this COVID is actually the longest I've ever been out of work. I was out of work for about three months. I was doing some stuff in the city at a place called the Back of Road, but I wasn't really happy. I did Sworn Enemy and Alec, you know, Alec Keen's Gun. I did them at uh, St. Vitus. Uh, shout out to Dave Castillo. Okay. 
St. Vitus. Dave's a great guy. I get along great with St. Vitus guys. So I did it. I subletted a show out of St. Vitus and Dave's like, ah, oh, you want to do shows here? I just, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. Not, I don't know if I want to come back to Brooklyn. So I said, I was on the fence about working with Nick for an assortment of reasons. And, uh, you know, I, but I didn't really know him, know him. I never really knew him. I knew him to a degree. We did some business uh, trading bands here and there, but I didn't really know him. So I said, you know, maybe things are different. And I, and I want to stay in Queens. I'm living in Queens at this point. I moved from Sheepset Bay. Uh, my girlfriend at the time was working at St. John's University, which is not too far from where I live in Fresh Meadows. I'm still here to this day. And uh, so I find out about this place. It was called the Arena at the time. He was kind of subletting it. He didn't own it yet, but he was. He wound up buying the place and turning it into Blackbone 51. And say what you want about Nick. And, you know, he's got his thing with people and stuff it's none of my thing i wasn't involved in his thing back in the day i had my own thing i did but uh he was always successful and he always had clubs that were around for a long time so i said you know listen i'm and he wanted to do national acts he wanted to do big bands doro pesh metal church flotsam and jets some stuff that i really couldn't do and i was kind of wanting to work with some of these bands and the room had the size we started out with local shows I went there. We got along. I was the first guy he hired. And um, I said, I want to bring John the doorman with me. Sure. Okay. You know, so John got in, of course, everyone, as soon as you bring John in, everybody loves John. John becomes the doorman there as he was for every other place that I went to. John was like a prerequisite of anywhere I went. John had to come with me. Uh, I didn't go anywhere without John. Uh, so, um, and John always wound up being a staple mate at the club that he worked at, you know, it wasn't like I got John a job and he tanked it. John, you know, just became his own. Yeah, he son. owned it. Yeah, yeah, he owned it. So, like, it was a good combination when you got me and John together. You got a doorman and a booker in the same fucking hand. So I went there and uh, we started out as local shows. And then we started doing, you know, national acts. Everything there from Winger to fucking, my God, Mike Tramp. I know your mom would probably be happy about that. Singer from White Lion. And uh, uh, over the years, we did some Maduro. It was a great show. Doyle, the guys from the Misfits. And I mean, just uh, up and down the line. And then we did Suffocation, Immolation. We did the big death metal bands. We did uh, Head PE and just you name them. We, we did everything there. And we had some really good success the first few years there. Um, and again, it was a different ball game. It was a different time now. Hardcore, I was still bringing in some hardcore. I did some stuff. Uh, Sworn Enemy, Shy Halud, some of the old suspects got to play. Sub-Zero did a show with Lou and the guys a few years ago. Good shows. They were good. It wasn't the same anymore, really, as it used to be, Joe, honestly. I cast about 100, 100 and change showed up. But Black One's about a 350 cap club. Um, and honestly, what sold there, Joe, is when we did the metal churches and the Doros and the retro metal and stuff. That was the big draw. You know what I mean? Uh, but but we did do Agnostic Front and stuff like that, and it packed it out. AF played every year for us, and it was great. Of course, my relationship with my and Roger has a very big relationship with my brothers, especially with Mark. Roger's like family, Roger Murray to, to me and my brothers. So once, you know, oh, Kev Castle works there and stuff. And even if they were on the fence about working with Nikki, they were like, as long as Kev, Kev is there, we'll do it. Uh, same thing with All At War. Same thing with all the other guys that I got to play there. Um, and they loved the room and everything. It was good. It was a big room. It was a lot bigger than Castle Heights. Um, it wasn't exactly the same anymore. There was, it, don't get me wrong. The shows were good, but it wasn't, uh, you know, and again, we're all older and maybe you can't recapture those kind of things like you could. It was as good as it should be. But again, people were reminiscent about, wow, back in Castle Heights, this would have been out the door packed. You know what I mean, Joe? So it was like, it's a different time now, but they were good. They were, they were acceptable, good shows, but were they, um, I, I, I have to say, and as years go on, and if uh, 10 years from now or two years from now, and I can give you an exclusive here, actually, on the show, I can announce here, we are going to be doing a 20-year 
anniversary uh, thing for Castle Heights, a whole weekend, by the way. Uh, that's you'll awesome. Be, you'll be hearing from me about that. Uh, I'll talk to you more off the show about the details. And that's going to be a weekend. It's going to not, you know, because I know that Black and Blue does their thing in May. Our thing will be sometime in the fall uh, in 2022. Uh, it'll be 20 years, and we're going to have all the old suspects come back all weekend, as many as we can get. Irate? Who, know, who knows? We don't know. No. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to hit up all the old suspects, a few of the out-of-state suspects that I mentioned to you. Uh, hopefully, you'll have some involvement when I'll talk to you about that. Um, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do it up big, and we might even rent out a big place. Um, it's in the works right now. Uh, but it's two years from now, so about two years, maybe – two years uh, early October. So, and you know, how fast time goes by Joe, it'll be here before you know it. So with that said, I'm saying that um, the, though we're in Queens, though we're in Blackthorn, I think, you know, sometimes you, you could try and, you know, relive those memories to a degree, but I think it has to have that feel the location. It's, it's just a different time. Now it's a bigger venue, all older. Some of the old heads didn't come out to some of those shows. Now when AF played, we packed the room out and we had a lot of friends on the shows and stuff. It was great. But what I did learn then is it takes a hell of a lot of people to fill out a 350, 400 capacity room. Uh, Castle Heights was easy to fill that room back in the day. Uh, today it was a little bit more of a struggle. So we had to, uh, you know, really push it to get the people to come down. And if we didn't have those big headliners like AF sick of it all guys like that, I, I don't know how well we would have did, you know, and again, the overhead is a lot more blacked on than it used to be that I was used to dealing with. I'm dealing with corporate situations. Now people holding you to letters of the law and contracts. Nick is in charge of the club. I'm his underboss, so to speak. I'm the VP. He's the president. I got to go with what the president says. I can be against it. Uh, and you know, too, Joe, the dirty word. And, and I didn't do this for hardcore bands too much. Only when I had to on certain big shows like AF, we had to. The fucking dreaded presale tickets, uh. um, you know, which suck, man. And, and again, uh, I was so not accustomed to that. And I was working with people who did it for years. Um, the metal bands don't mind doing it. The hardcore bands hate every fucking second of it. And I get it why they do. Uh, the punk bands never want to do it, but the metal bands, I don't know if, you know, if you deal with pre-sale tickets or do metal shows or do these retro throwback shows outside of hardcore, it's almost like standard procedure with these agents and even people that get on the bill, it's political or who can open the show. We actually have them bands hit us up and offer to do that for the fest. They'll be like, we can sell at least this many tickets. And I'm like, well, we really don't do that for that. But, uh, Thank There's other you. shows you could do that for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, in hardcore, I know it's like a dirty word, but in metal, it's totally accepted in the metal community. And it's like the thing and hard rock. Like we had winger playing there. It's like, how do I, how many tickets do I get on the show? And of course the club owner wants to hear that, you know? So he's like, Hey, you know, set this up. And again, I get it from both sides. I get why it's a pain in the ass. And I get why the club owner has to do it. And I also see the guarantees that some of these bands, these throwback bands ask for. And I'm like, how are we going to come up with that? Like, are we even going to bring that through the door? And then you got like a, a nine person staff for this, this 400 capacity room again there's all sorts of things that go into these things that i don't think people even understand so as many times i walked out of that club not getting paid and i got bitter about it uh because i'm like i'm busting my ass and i'm like i'd rather go back you know and somebody's like it was better when it was like in the triple a days right i'm like dude i'd rather go be in triple a than if this is the majors i want back in the minors you know what i'm saying so i was like i was even saying to myself wow you know i want to go back to the way it used to be, but can I go back to, and then this brings me to what I'm doing now. Um, I'm at a club that, you know, pretty known club called lucky 13 in Brooklyn. Uh, I got the book over there. Now I started there last 
uh, last year, last September, October, doing a lot of local stuff, some hardcore stuff, but nothing too major or stuff. But I want to start bringing bigger bands in there. It's very Castle Heights-ish, very Castle Heights-ish. Uh, it reminds me so much of Castle Heights. If Castle Heights didn't have, uh, you know, girls uh, dancing on the go-go, you know, dancing on the bar, we never had anything like that. But the back room, the sound, the way it's run, the, the people who love the place, it reminds me a lot of Castle. And I wanted them. That's why we were going to do the four in the chamber comeback show there. We were going to do a bunch of stuff there. I wanted to get shut down uh, to play that when Mark comes back with his band next year. Um, so I, again, that was a room that I'm like, you know, if I do Blackthorn, I got to play the game. I got to do what I got to do there with these big bands, this corporate shit. I can't, you know, I, I'm one man can't change everything. And plus I'm not the owner and I don't own the fucking place. So I could like it or, or lump it. There's situations there that I thought, I understood where they were coming from with these pre-sales, especially for some of these acts like Doro and stuff. The money these people get is like ridiculous. And I'm like, I get it. But then there's other shows where I even said, you know, I think if we put this whole thing together, I think we can draw two, 300 people here without pre-sales. And quite honestly, Joe, I get shot down. I'd be like, are you going to put, are you going to pay, pay the, def-? you know, like in other words, it's on me if this doesn't work. So it puts you in this position. It's like, you know, back in the Castle Lights days, I'd have this faith and I'd roll the dice. But I don't know if I have this faith anymore in anybody because no, if no one seems to give that much a shit about it, you know. So what am I? What am I doing here? So again, it was always um, a battle of uh, a battle with my own self of thinking about. I don't know if I want to do this anymore, but if I want to go back to my roots and do things, I remember when I met with Jeff from lucky 13, I says, I can do what I want here. He's like, you know, I can run it my way. I can charge what I want. I can give the bands the amount of time I want to play. I don't got to rush people off stage. And you know, he says to me, dude, you're the guy from castle Heights. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot who I was because <laughs> I got I get used to yeah, being told no more Castle Heights shit. So. I got well, well, that was a Continental. Yeah. So it was like so, but I, when I met with Jeff, who's also one of my dear friends who owns Lucky Thirteen, uh, he's like, dude, you tell me what you want to do. You're in this business for a long time. You, I, I think people says you got you know not brainwashed, but you got like kind of just you, beat up you a got, little. You got beat up a little. I think working at Blackthorn. I think I did, and I think it's fair. And I think some people listening to this will probably shake their heads and go, "Yeah, he's right. He did." Um, it wasn't like I wasn't the same Kev Castle anymore, however. But they knew that I had to adhere to these things, and I was always apologizing to everybody, like, "Yeah, I'm sorry. I do the pre-sale. You know, this is the way it is. This is the way the guy wants it." Because then I'm like, you know, fuck, and I have responsibilities, and I and I invested a lot of my time and my money and my efforts in that club. I've been there since it opened. So to just walk away and take a stand, to be honest with you, Joe. Well, I get like a golf clap for doing that, you know? Oh, great. And what have I changed? What, what's changed? How have I changed the system by me quitting? The only thing I can do to help change the system is not be part of that system and go do my own thing the way I need to do it somewhere else. And if it's considered minor league, I'm doing finger quotes. Yeah. If it's good, then so be it. I'm not, you know, listen, everybody needs to uh, coach and help bands develop and stuff. And I don't need to work with famous bands and go on the bus and meet the guy from the misfits. I was never a star fucker. All due respect to everybody. I, I don't, I'm not amazed. I don't, I'm not an amazement of, and it's great to meet your idols, to meet the guy from rat, to meet the guy from this, band and that band it's great but i'm kind of my whole thing is i want to enjoy what i'm doing and i think i lost that the last few years and i think anybody who knows me really well right now listen to this will be like yeah he's, he's being honest i think i lost that um uh kind of uh you know um passion for the business and i'm trying to get it back now uh by uh and, and again it's 
ironic because as I'm yeah, doing all this, all this preparations that I started in January for Lucky 13 and the whole spring and summer, the whole calendar was wiped out. And I laugh because it's almost like, man, what the fuck? Because I, I made this declaration at the end of last year where I was not happy at Blackthorn anymore. I was still going to do some business with Nick. I would feed some bands in, some bands who wanted to play on certain shows. But for the most part, I didn't go there anymore. I hadn't been seen at Blackthorn in months. Uh, John's like, do you still work here? I'm like, I don't, I don't know if I work there anymore. We had to have a lot of conversations about that. I was very unhappy and uh, about the politics there. And I'm not putting all the blame. There was enough blame to go around for a lot of people. But I just knew I, I'm 52. I knew I was turning 52 this year. I says, I don't, I don't want this. So I want to go back to a smaller place, run things the way I want to run it, bring my guys in like I had to. And I got uh, guys that I work with that I really like. And not that I didn't like the guys at Blackthorn. I like them a lot. But again, they're not my guys. Uh, except, you know, John, you know, does what he, he does. John works another full-time job. I know I'm going on and on here. But to, just to wrap it up, um, so my plan was to, bring uh stuff back to brooklyn at lucky 13 and be as castle heights oriented as i can but being modern about it and being realistic about it and not having we can't exactly and it's also a 21 and up club it's not all ages like castle heights was so it's uh, i gotta play by the 21 and up rule in brooklyn which i don't have a problem with to be honest with you joe um but i wanted to do things more from a grassroots level and that was my whole plan that was completely shattered once march 15th the clock struck midnight and my whole year changed and that's here we are where we are and uh that's why i said uh to beginning i i wonder if i'm am i still in the business and i even said to jeff uh do i retain my job when we go back oh yeah sure of course and i even do a podcast with jeff the lucky 13 podcast here and there we just kind of update what's going on um right now um i give you an update blackthorn is completely closed i mean it's not closed down but it's closed uh, there's no walk-up traffic or any reason to have Blackthorn open. It's a venue for live music performances. So if no bands are playing, there's no reason for the club to be open. So that is closed, closed, closed. Hasn't been open since March 15th. Lucky 13 is open as a uh, to-go place. They still have uh, the bartender and they serve drinks. You got to take it outside. You can eat, drink outside. Uh, now they're allowing for 25% people on September 30th to come in. But quite honestly, Joe, that's dick. You can't. Yeah, that's nobody. You can't do anything with that. So I'm still kind of, we're all ass out uh, waiting. And even to prepare a calendar, honestly, Joe, I've ripped up. And I'm, I don't, I'm, you could probably tell me yourself about this. Obviously, you know, this hardcore thing was postponed every year. I know you do it in July. Um, but my calendars, I don't even fill out calendars anymore. There is nothing on my books right now. I'm going to start from a clean slate. Once I get the green light, I'll need a few weeks to put things together. And, uh, I don't even try at this point anymore because I just said, cause again, I, I heard May, then I heard June, then I heard full July. We'll be back by August. Here we are. It's October in two days, yeah. dude. And we got nothing in sight. So right now I'm a podcaster. I do wrestling podcasts and I, uh, I've been doing the Don Tony Kevin Castle show for 13 years, which uh, Rolling Stone ranked top wrestling podcast. Uh, we don't work for any particular wrestling company. We're independent. Uh, we do. I do Patreon shows. We have a big Patreon on Discord. And uh, I do a bunch of guest stuff on other wrestling podcasts. Pro wrestling is like my other love. You know, I'm a big wrestling guy. Um, so I've been doing that. And I'm, I'm still managing bands. And we're planning for the future. My bands are in rehearsal. And they're ready to play. And we get the green light and tour and go overseas. And Apparition has things on tap for that. Uh, so does Damn Your Eyes. And uh, just kind of preparing, but nothing down solid because we, we, I can't keep ripping up calendars like that. So right now I'm just like waiting, I'm sitting and waiting and I'm sure you're doing a lot of that yourself as a booker. I'm going to touch on a couple of things and sure. I really appreciate you laying out. And then first of all, when we talk about the 400 cap room, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a hard room to fill with hardcore. Yes. Yeah. And, and and I think that people have a misconception about just how big bands get because there's the Live Nation aspect, the AEG, AEG thing, where you see some bands play certain rooms and they're like, oh, these bands are really blowing up. But your journeyman level bands, and I'll leave names out just so they don't get butter sure, when I say sure. this, that, you know, on their good nights, regardless it's East Coast, West Coast, they're doing three or 400 maybe. Yeah. And, and that's a hard thing because hardcore had so many times where, you know, especially late, especially when we're talking about like the late 90s, any band was doing five, 600 at some point. It felt like, at, at, at like, you know, 25 to life was one of them. You know, there's so many bands and, and, the, the the concept is oh yeah these bands are going to draw and it's like it's not always the same and, and I, I was in the same boat for quite a bit because i was i was feeling like i wasn't getting the shows i'd like to get because i don't work for a corporate entity yeah but i don't want to work for a corporate entity because i don't want to sit in an office all day and play nice when i just want to book the bands i want to book yeah and and i felt at times even in the last couple of this is hardcore is because I was working through the electric factory and they were working loosely and then directly with AEG. Right. Some of their rules had changed. And then, and I started feeling like, so why, why like the idea to move it to a big room was so more people come. And um, one of the most fucked up parts about COVID for me is that my mentor, Brian Dilworth, who was a booker before he was ever in any of those big companies and worked for live nation, then became really big in AEG Every time I'd be like, dude, I'm just going to make it small again. Let me just make it small. I'd be like, dude, don't do this. Like, let me help you. You know, like, and, and he actually passed away the Monday before all the COVID stuff broke. Oh, jeez. Wow. So this hardcore was in jeopardy from March 7th before we even were talking about COVID. Hmm. And um, actually, the last thing we, we were, I was on the road trip and I was on the phone with him. He's like, please stop ducking, blah, blah, blah. Get on the phone with him. Like, I know you don't feel like talking to him. And, I, and it was because I was talking about a band that would have been cool for the festival, but I had no excitement for it. Yeah. And he's, and he's like, look, he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, I don't care. Like I was saying, I don't care if they play, can you just book it? And he's like, it's your thing. And I'm like, and I, so, so much of what you just said, I can relate to. And it's like, this isn't, this isn't me, man. And I didn't know how to get me back. Yeah. And I, I think with COVID, the silver lining for me is that I'm going straight hall shows. I'm going to like, I have a decent relationship with a couple rooms, but in yeah. the situation here with gentrification and a lot of the clubs on different leases, there's a couple clubs that may not even make it through till when they reopen. Oh yeah. yeah. So, so I'm assuming it's via VFWs. It's all. And that's where I, that's where I shine to be honest, because like you said, we were talking about with the castle, Hey, this is all the money that's on the table. There's only X amount of people that come in. This is all I can do. And if you want to go up the street for more money, we're, we're better off because I used to chase it with this hardcore and I was like, oh, I'll give you more money and we'll make it happen because I wanted to make people happy. And the more I was working towards making some people happy, I wasn't as happy because the stress. And then, like you said, the different paperwork and all the different stuff that would come with it. Like, I don't know how you feel, but like I get an email that says this band's name isn't the same size as this band. It's a co-bill. And I just oh. like. The nuances and these little nitpickings just drive me nuts. It's like, dude, and I said, we don't have two stages. One band's playing last, their name's bigger. Yeah. And it, and it, it started really eating me up. And then I realized like, okay, if I want to be able to facilitate the shows that I want to do, I got to play the game. So I started being a little bit more affable and working, but it was so annoying to play the new industry game 
yeah. with bands that are playing and we're talking about 150 people in the room like we don't have to play it like it's led zeppelin like can we just go back to this is a hardcore show so I, I when you were talking about that i was just like man i, I was in that i was in your shoes i was really like is this me is this what i want to do and it's like i love hardcore i love all the aspects of it and that was a, a huge part of why i wanted to start talking about the podcast because there's plenty of hardcore podcasts but there's not a lot of people having deeper conversations no, no and, and there's and there's podcasts that can you know if you want to talk about your new record i'm probably not the podcast to go to exactly i i want to hear about why this matters to you and so everything that you said and even leading out of the blackthorn into the smaller venue like I, I, I like some of our best shows right now are at this little record store and oh, yeah. we get, like literally. And it's like, Oh, we only have 125 in here. Sick, easy. And and, and it just brings yeah. you back to the simplicity of it. So I, I completely relate to where you're at. It totally, um, it, it totally does. I mean, you know, that's the, the whole thing is being happy. I remember, I remember saying, and I'm talking, I remember talking to my oldest brother, Joe, and he's like, I think you need a manager. Let me manage you. And I'll manage all your deals with all these guys. Black Thorn, your podcast. I'm going to make deals for you. You, you got to, again, you, 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 you have to be more business when it comes to protecting yourself and knowing that business does not have to feel miserable. I don't know who's selling you this bag of bullshit, as my brother said. You know, there's a thing. Just like you're unhappy in your marriage, you get out of your marriage and you go meet somebody else who makes you happy. You don't, you're not adhere. You're not at straight out of prison and you're on work furlough where you have to work for these clubs and you don't owe anybody anything. You know, just you paid as much dues as any band. And I needed that pep talk from my oldest brother who's not even in the business saying, fuck that, these owners who are putting these guilt trips on you and you're making bands sell tickets and then they'll get bitching at you and you're not even going home with a paycheck for this what are you doing kev what are you doing you know he's like you know seriously he's a, you know he's like the same guy that that i used to go to his shows a happy go lucky so you look miserable at that club and i said the same thing and i don't want to put it all on black but again i was miserable joe absolutely miserable john even said I remember when Kev was like the funniest, happiest guy here and, and ownership, well, it's the business. I'm like, no, it's the business, but it's the, the people who are setting the tone for the business. And that's the problem. It's the agents, it's certain owners, it's certain bands with bad attitudes. Uh, again, I'm just one guy. I could easily quit and say, fuck you all. I'm going to go do my own thing and whatever. And I said, I'll get a golf clap from a bunch, bunch of people. Yeah, you go, Kev, a couple of Facebook thumbs up. And what the fuck, what is that? At the end of the day, that'll get me a bag of Funyuns. You know, what is that going to do for me? So, uh, again, people want to like do this big proclamation, go on social media. I quit this club and I'm pro this and that. And it's, ah, you know, to me, actions speak better than words. And again, I, I thought I was almost like trapped in a situation where again, uh, and again, I had some good times at this club, but the, the, what I've learned is that I liked being on the, on, on the smaller ground level underground kind of thing going on and i'm not trying to recapture castle lights it's not that but what i am trying to recapture is enjoying doing a gig again and enjoying doing a job and being around people who like playing gigs and like contributing like being part of something that's positive and th that's forever that doesn't that doesn't go out of style that doesn't go out of style so i think again uh people say oh okay we're gonna bring back house lights no i'm not bringing back house lights Castle lights wouldn't work today anyway because quite honestly we broke the law so much i don't even know how we got away with it after fucking time oh, and pre-cell <laughs> that's all pre-cell phone too so pre-cell yeah exactly so again what i'm again and i'm not putting it all on a club like i said i had some good times at black one i might even do business 
business with them in the future. Uh, right now, I'm, I guess I, you consider me a furloughed guy because uh, I'm not doing anything there. I'm not drawing any money from them. I'm not drawing a paycheck. I'm free and clear to do whatever I want. I'm a free agent booker right now. Uh, and I'll always get a job in this business. Uh, always. If anybody wants someone who knows what they're doing, I'll get a job in this business. Um, because again, I get along with the bands. I know the business. I know the game. Uh, I have a working relationship. St. Vitus, Kingsland, Gold Sounds. You name the clubs here in New York. I have a friend in every club. I know the owner of every club. I know the, the booker and the promoter of every club. So it's not about getting a gig. I'll always get a gig, but I wanted the next room that I make my home. And I hope it is lucky 13. I hope we do beat this COVID thing and come back because a lot of clubs are in jeopardy. Joe, I won't kid you. A couple of clubs I even named some are in jeopardy of closing and not reopening at all. Uh, and that affects me, of course. Um, but I want to, when I go back after this COVID thing is I've got to, uh, be content with what I'm doing. I, I just don't want to drag ass and just live off the memories. And it's great talking about this past things and, and all these great memories, uh, because they're all real. They're all legit. It's not made up. It's not embellished. All the shit we're talking about tonight, 100% happened. Um, but let's make some new memories and have some new things to be happy about. So 10, when I do castle Heights reunion in two years, I can say, wow, for the last two years though, I've been tearing it up at lucky we've been having a great time that club's killing it so i can have some new war stories to tell instead of just saying oh when were you most happy eh, 99 to 2003 and then i was pretty miserable till about 2007 uh again i think this business is what you put into it but sometimes when you have people over you joe you know it too you can only do so much joe hardcore can only do so much if you have a guy who's an owner owns the property that you're leasing out you have to adhere to certain things and if you and him aren't clicking you'll go somewhere else and see if you can work with that next guy uh me and you have we me and you have never owned the club we've worked in accords to other people who own the property that we're doing our shows at and sometimes we got to do what we got to do and we're not happy about it but so people are like oh open your own club kev own your own club nah i don't want to do that that'll, nah, that, that'll put me in a great show that'll give me a surefire heart attack and i won't make the reunion show two years from now so, I, i'd no, rather no. own a vfw hall that no one that no one could tell me what to do <laughs> that that would be cool too and then like you could do parties and rent it out for sweet 16s and uh, i even thought about dude i've thought about doing that being like a fucking all of like an event planner or something like that because like i said you can take these skills that you learn talking to people and you can take them somewhere else and i think what i wound up doing to myself because of how old i was was saying yeah this is the only game in queens and if i quit and i go back somewhere else it looked like i couldn't do it or and it's not that i can't do it it's can't and not wanting to are two different things you know what absolutely I mean? it's what absolutely. i learned it's what i've learned over the years it's like my brother because my brother said to me are you happy there i'm like no joe i don't want to go i don't want to go to the show tonight I remember af was playing i didn't want to even go and i booked the whole undercard and i just wanted to go to see roger and mike and i wanted to go late and just walk in through the side door i just had this attitude of not wanting to be there and i didn't like that and that wasn't like me i took pride in my shows and again i'm not going to put it all on uh the powers that be over there but again i just felt miserable and i felt like trapped and again and when i went to lucky 13 i had almost like this light shine on me when i met jeff and he's like dude you do things your way i'm not going to tell you what to do so i was like I go, and he goes, just don't do anything that you know hurts me. Or of course not. I go, oh, everything will be by the letter of the law. And will I said, John, oh. will John be there though? Uh, I don't know. I mean, John, John's got, <laughs> John's got his own thing going yeah. on. John, John works for uh, Pepperidge Farm, and so does his awesome. brother. Uh, they've worked for that company for years, and and uh, you know, John too is closing in on the five zero. You know, he's he's getting up there. But uh, again, um, 
you know, uh, it depends on what everybody wants to do. But yeah, of course, if John wants to come over, I'll gladly take John. And if, if he wants to do that, I'm not sure if John wants to do that anymore. But um, we'll see what happens. But John will certainly be involved in the uh, reunion two years from now. And so will Dave and, and uh, you know, I'm sure Glenn and Gary and everybody who was involved in the, the staffing at Castle Heights back in the day. And again, I'll, if I do something, whether it's a live nation venue or I do something with Christian or I uh, do something to rent out, maybe another club pops up, Joe, you know, what's going on now, some clubs are going to fold and some are going to open. And then absolutely there's going to be, there's going to be an entire uh, consolidation on one end. Mm -hmm. There's going to be new opportunities and it's going to be a different world than what we closed out in March. That's for certain. Yeah, I mean, so again, so people are going, what, what loca- I go, you know what? It wouldn't be wise for me to pick the location now because I might have to go change it three times. Uh, so what I even Dave is going to be uh, a partner with me in this uh, from Apparition. I uh, wouldn't even consider it that Dave is, uh, like I said, I'm going to surround myself with people with a business head and logic and uh, a good team. And, uh, you know, we're going to, for one weekend, we're going to bring it back old school uh, and uh, bring a lot of the bands back together. I can't. Uh, name any names, but the bands that some of you guys who are listening to this want to see reunite, we're going to do everything we can to make that happen. And if it is going to happen, it will happen then. Let's just put it that way. I think that's awesome. Just that yeah. you're even putting it that far out, man. And I, oh, think, yeah. Yeah. I think that things like that are, I mean, unfortunately it seems at times the only time we get shows like that are when uh, it's a benefit show, like the, the benefit show for day vision yeah. was certainly like that yeah. because there are a lot of great occasions where you're celebrating a specific thing. Now, obviously there's a lot of yearly festivals. Mine's with one of them, but there should be something just for castle. And, and I'm, I'm actually super excited. And I know when this goes live, people are going to be really pumped on this. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, I told Dave, I was going to announce it tonight and I told Mike, I haven't gotten a chance to talk to John, uh, but I'll let him know and everything. And yeah, I mean, I'm going to spearhead this and I'm going to try and uh, involve everybody who was involved in the old group. And it'll be bands that were uh, regulars for us and were real supporters of Castle Heights. I'm not, it's not going to be a lineup where I just get a name who played there once and never went there another time. I, I want to bring some people there who really helped uh, make that club what it was. I want it to be the, the kind of reunion it's supposed to be. You know what I mean, Joe? Not to yeah. just have star names on the show. Because quite honestly, Joe, I think even bringing back some of the mid-level bands, if we put everybody together in one room, I think we could pack it out without the star names. You know what I mean? I think I, I, just, I, I, I advise that heavily. I think, yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's the meat. The meat of the pie is what people are going to be excited for. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, because everyone's like, oh, you're going to get such and such, you know, the usual suspects this big. I'm like, ah, they weren't a Castle Lights band. It wouldn't make sense. I was like, you know, of course, I, I would talk to Jamie about it. Jamie had a big, uh, Jamie Josta was, was very uh, uh, involved in the early days of Castle Heights and, and coming up. Uh, the, like I said, the people who we mentioned on the show, the bands that names I dropped, those are the people you can expect to see involved. Um, anybody who's going to be involved will be, there's a reason for them to be involved. Even you, Joe, and people from, well, it's out to win. That's my neighbor's dog. Um, will be the right people. It's not going to be some star fest where you'll say, did those guys actually play Castle Lights? No. Uh, they, it's going to be the real deal. It's going to be, gonna be the re- It's going to be the real deal. Exactly. That's. It's going to be exactly what you think it would be. And, the, and the, those names of those bands who we uh, said several times tonight and more. So it'll be, it's going to be, a, we're going to try and make it a three-day event. 
uh, and it'll definitely be in the fall because I don't want to conflict. I have uh, nothing but respect for uh, Black and Blue. They're friends, two of the family, and uh, they do their thing in May. And I want to make this far enough away from that. This will be in the fall. This will be our own thing, not to conflict with your thing either, Joe. So because you got those guys who have a spring thing, you have your big thing in filling the summer. So I'm going to do something in the fall to keep it spaced out enough where people can go to all these events and talk about going to the next event a couple of months later, you know? No, that's awesome. Yeah. I you you had said that you had been doing a podcast for thirteen years. You said, yeah, Don, Tony, Kevin, Castro. It's funny. I'm not on that. We're not doing Mondays anymore. Actually, I'm free on Mondays for the first time in a long time. For the last couple of weeks, I've been off. But for thirteen years, every Monday night after Monday Night Raw, uh, from eleven to one, eleven to two, I was doing a podcast, Don, Tony, Kevin, Castle show. Uh, it's carried by all all that we were on. Every every Pandora was picked up our show a couple of years ago. We're on so many different outlets. But uh, we had to make some changes, too, and change with the times and stuff. So um, we're doing some different things now. We have a Patreon. Patreon is like a must now for podcasts to do, like, special shows for their fan base and pay the bills and stuff. Because, as you know, even running podcasts costs money and doing shows uh, costs money. Um, so I'm doing, I've been doing that for a long time, but now in the 2021 talk about new horizons, I'm going to be, uh, starting up a new wrestling podcast, doing some things with a new crew of guys, uh, kind of branching out on my own. Um, and that's going to be in 2021 as well too. So it's a lot of, uh, pre-planning the next couple of months for lucky 13 in the new year and for my podcasting, uh, thing in wrestling for the new year. And, um, I'm looking forward to like new ventures and stuff, you know, it's scary a little bit now cause I'm older now and I can't afford to like fool around with too much. Anything I get involved with, it's gotta, I, you know, to me, it's got to hit, you know what I mean? But you know, sometimes it's going to hit, sometimes it's going to tank, you know, you know, now it's going to do, but, uh, I've been podcasting before it was even called podcasting. I was doing this thing back in 2006, 2007 was still called internet radio, uh, before they even came up with the podcasting name. And it's funny because, uh, you know, I have high hopes because I see Joe Rogan who we used to beat out back in the day. No joke. This is actually true. Joe Rogan now is a multimillionaire and the number one podcast in the world. And back in the day when he first started, he would have like not even a couple of thousand people. Listen, we used to finish over him in the rankings and now we're not even in the same stratosphere as him, but it is funny. So I have hope that podcasting can become a big thing. If you hit, hit on the right uh, channels and wrestling is, is always super popular. I don't know if you're a wrestling fan yourself, but uh, wrestling is, uh, is kind of uh, still a big deal. It's not as popular as it used to be back in the day, but it's still got a tremendous fan base. And honestly, it's been my job and paid the bills uh, for me uh, since I, if I didn't have the podcast, I would have been in big time trouble because uh, as you know, as a club worker, you kind of ass out right now, you know? So uh, working in a club, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's unemployed city here, but the podcasting has been keeping things afloat and it's fun. I love doing the podcast, interacting with people, taking calls and wrestling fans are super passionate. It's not that far removed Joe from hardcore or people whose passion for the music scene. You know what I mean? No, I definitely see it already. And in fact, I, I was explaining it to someone cause they were like, you know, and obviously we just came out with this earlier this month and they're like, you know, like, are you excited? And I was like, every time I record one of these, when it's over, I feel like the end of a show and, <laughs> and, and, and I can say this, that this is like cat. Like I knew we were going to have a good conversation tonight. Oh yeah. I knew that you had so much to just say, and I knew that you have such this awesome way of having a great New York accent, but not killing your vocabulary with it. And just <laughs> you flow so well that I'm like, anyone who wants to hear about Castle Heights, Kevin needs to be the first guy to talk about it. I appreciate and, that. And, and I think that for me, 
I, like I was saying, I was just trying to find where I could do something that isn't like what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And this is it. And it's, it's not me talking. It's me asking questions from awesome people like you. And so I, I'm just like psyched that I'm able to do this. And I think that's so much like the hardcore thing where you're trying to create something and give something back. And what you did tonight is exactly that. Like there are so many people that needed to hear this and that's, that's my drive for doing the podcast. Um, I, I think that there isn't, I don't know, it probably always was that way. Maybe people just weren't as out with it or maybe because we didn't have the internet as much. Yeah. We didn't know about our little hobbies, but hardcore is pretty fucking wrestling savvy right now. Like it is yeah. the Twitter, the Instagram, the kids. I mean, I would say that uh, you're going to, if well, regardless if it's a new podcast or one you're already doing and people probably know that you're already on, have your own podcast, but I would say that you'll definitely pick up people because hardcore kids are obsessed with wrestling. Um, in fact, you said you brought up ECW. One of the potential rooms for this is hardcore in the future could be now the 2300 arena. Oh yeah. Wow. It could be the ECW room. And um, I, I'm just excited about the idea of if we do it there, you know, like, Holy shit. I remember going there that at, the true, heydays, yeah. at the heydays on the L train and someone stealing a street sign so they could throw it into the ring. And now I'm like, we actually might pull this off and do this here. So, um, what do you think the best thing that you got out of podcasting was so far? Uh, probably my communication skills. I think that like, I, 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 it's funny, even Nick, you know, as much as we butt heads, the owner from black Dawn, we still are friendly and I could consider him a friend. I consider him a, uh, we have a weird friendship. Like, you know, we can go at it and then we can just talk because we're both older guys. He's even 10 years older than me. And uh, you know, we're in this business, like old war veterans and we can battle it out. And at the end of the day, we're almost like uh, the, 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 the karate kid adversary, uh, Johnny and Ralph Macchio uh, going at it all the time, but we kind of, in a weird way respect each other and we do work together and we do we, we were on all cylinders we work well but uh, he'll always tell me uh you know one thing i always give you you're the best talker i know in this business he goes so I, your podcast i always know if you get out of this business and you can make a living and podcast your, your talking game is on point that's why i always say every agent he's like oh go do your talking thing. Talk to this guy for me, please. And he's a good talker himself, but he's like, I, I can't deal with this guy. Can you call this guy and settle this situation? I'm like, yeah, give me his number. I'll call. I'm not, I have no fear of, of talking to anybody, whether a tough guy or a business guy or some girl who's unhinged about her band. I'll make the call. I'll try and settle things down. Uh, it's, it's what I do best. If I have anything I trade, I got from my dad who passed away a few years ago. He, he had a great talking game too. He was a, a teacher for the army. He would talk to uh, soldiers uh, when they came home, didn't know what to do with themselves or were going into the army and had some worries or hangups. My father would counsel them. So I, I kind of got that gift of gab from my dad. Uh, and uh, I think, like I said, I, I, the, the podcasting thing, it's just, I get to, I get as much out of it as, as I get, from the, the, the people, they don't realize this is cathartic and therapeutic for me, as well as it is for other people to listen to me. So like, even now I'm getting all this stuff out. Everything I told you tonight is stuff I've never said on a podcast before. I gave you some like real exclusive, not just a reunion and stuff like that and talking about bands, but even my feelings about uh, really uh, having self-doubt and kind of hating on myself and not enjoying the business for the last few years and not liking the politics of it and really having a lot of doubt. I never really revealed that publicly to anybody tonight. 
tonight and I feel great about it. I don't feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that, you know, because to, to me at 52, if I'm not going to be honest at this point, uh, and I think I've always been pretty honest guy in this business. I've did what I've had to do protect certain things and you know it too joe we have secrets to the kingdom on certain Mm -hmm. bands and we can be if we wanted to start trouble with people we certainly could uh but we we people entrust us with certain things that they tell us and that's why i didn't want to bury nikki tonight i want to bury any bands i'm not trying to blame anybody but what i will say is my real feelings are sometimes i just don't see eye to eye with certain people and i'm not i'm not happy about it so i don't want to hate on them so it's best for me to remove myself from that situation and go make myself happy and not sit there and blame well this guy's the reason i'm feeling under under the under the bridge uh i can pick myself up and go and walk anytime i want to so i can put the blame equally on myself so again uh so tonight like i said i gotta be honest about things like oh everything's great everything's great because that's not real and i think people are going through a time now where um a lot of people are not having a great it's not a great year for anybody if anybody's having a good year please let me know yeah how did you do that yeah. How did anybody have a great year? I mean, it's a real trying time for everybody. And I think people appreciate honesty. And I think your podcast will excel if you have conversations like this with notable people in the hardcore scene, whether they're band people, club people, uh, people you plan on interviewing, you would tell me some of them and you get some real honesty and some real talk out of people. Your podcast will be separated from all those other ones who just want to talk about. Tell me about the record and how did you feel that day? And what was the, what's the craziest mosh pit you ever saw? We've heard all this stuff before. I think this kind of stuff, like real stuff, not making any money, being real about it, doing it for this. But then when you had to be business, you did it this way. And this is why you had to do it this way. Why there are rules for pre-sales, why I had to adhere to them. People are hearing it now. So instead of all greedy promoters, no, it's not about that. It's about being able to pay for the fucking show because if you bomb and you fail and you can't pay for this show, you'll have to cancel all the future national acts and you won't be able to bring these artists in anymore because the shows will tank. You have to find a way to get everybody to do things. If you have to force people's hands and make people because bands used to be good for their word. And I'm not saying any bands out there aren't good for their word anymore, but we also know that pressing going or maybe on an events page is not going to assure a draw. And it's better to assure than assume when it comes to doing what you have to do for a show. And if you get a big opportunity to play, if you're a metal band, how do I go on? How do I get the spot right before metal trucks? They're my favorite band of all time. This is what we need from you. Can you draw 50 people? Oh, I'll try. Uh, you know, hopefully the club doesn't want to hear that. They have to know that you can draw 50 people and how you're going to do that is if you take these tickets, you sell Hey, I sold all my tickets. Give me some more. Okay. Here. And you get this amount of tickets. Here's your cut. Here's ours. This is what you got to do. Do you agree? I agree. Okay. Then you shouldn't bitch about the results if you agreed to do it. Do you understand what I'm saying, Joe? So, and again, right. And if you don't want to do it, then here, you know what? Forget metal church, play this local show. You're not going to sell tickets. Uh, You can play 11 o'clock slot, 45 minute set. Uh, We don't want that. We want to play with a big band. Okay. Well, here's what you got to do if you play that big show. So don't bitch about the results. If you agree to do it, that's the one thing that frustrated me uh, about bands. And I, and again, um, you know, I'm on a wrestling podcast, so I don't get to talk shop like this too often. So that's why there's so much interest. And it's like, wow, you're going to be talking about Castle Heights. I'm like, yeah, I think we're going to have like a real in-depth conversation. And it went far better than I even thought it was going to go. And thank you for asking the good questions. I mean, because again, if you didn't ask certain questions, I probably wouldn't even said certain things, but 
again, the one thing I said tonight, no matter what you asked me, I was going to be totally honest about it. And I wasn't going to make like it was all great. I brought up a couple of incidents at Castle. I'm sure that some of the staff, like, oh, why'd you bring that up? Because it's important. It's part of our history. And to deny it and the, the people who are there when it happens, like, well, you didn't bring up that one incident. And it doesn't hurt anybody. It's truth. And it's what happened. And guess what? We were still around many years after that incident. So clearly we were doing something right. You know, uh, again, things happen to everybody and no one's perfect. And listen, I've been to CBs where there were brawls. I've been to Lamar's where there were bad fights. And I didn't say, I'm never coming back here again. This club doesn't know how to run a show. You know what I say? Shit happens. I never, I never, uh, the only people you blame for incidents are the people who start the incidents, in my opinion. You know what I mean? I love people who blame non-entities that had nothing to do with it. Like, you know, and meanwhile, it's clear as day. You can see on camera the people who start something. And then for some reason, if people want to hate on something, they'll say, no, no, it's this group's fault or this club's fault. Um, again, I've seen clubs run like shit. I've seen clubs run good. And I like to say that the clubs I've worked at have all been good. Um, there's been, you know, some mistakes here and there, but other than that, I've had a pretty good run and a pretty good ride. If it ended tomorrow, I'll be, I'll be all right with it. I don't know what I do with myself, but I'd have to find like another career. But, uh, again, for 2021, I plan on going back, doing small scale shows, maybe doing some big stuff with Nick at Blackbone. If it could be worked out, if I like the, you know, deal, uh, so to speak, or I like the uh, parameters are cool with me, uh, then I'm open to working with anybody. But if I just do smaller shows and 150 capacity room, do my podcast, and that's the way I go off into the sunset, that's so be it, you know, and or maybe I'll find something else I want to do, you know, I mean, um, you know, again, you can do whatever you want to do if you put all your effort into it. No, and what you said is so important. And it's, it needs to be reset is that we all win together and we all lose together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these bands that are playing now have to remember that, you know, um, I'm not on stage when shit is going off for the band. I'm right. back. I'm making it work for the sake of the band, for the sake of the scene. I just want everybody to have the best potential show they can have because every, and I say this a million times, the best thing about hardcore is you'll never have the same, the same exact show twice. Doesn't True. matter, and I, and I know you probably had similar bills at Castle, but yeah. you're never gonna, you're never gonna have the same show. It doesn't matter if it's the same bands, same venue the day after. It's gonna be different, and that's the importance of these bands working hard, and understanding that it doesn't end at the internet. It, it, like you know, in fact, uh, a thing that you had said about passing out handbills. That's how I met some of my best friends. Was mm -hmm. being a 16 year old kid with a sack of flyers. And then I, I didn't even have a school bag. I had like an old newspaper sack first. And then I eventually got like a, a cheap, like old Navy bag. And a lot of people met me for the first time as the dude running up and handing flyers to people. And me and Chris X and a bunch of people over the last couple of years of this hardcore, we hand out 20 something postcards every summer. And people are like, what are you doing? I'm like, this is how we fly. We don't stop. doesn't matter what the internet and I, 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 I feel you so hard on so many things, and I'm just appreciative that you were able to be honest. In fact, what I said to you in return for your honesty about the fest and how I was feeling, I have a handful of friends, my wife, a couple people who really understand that, that and, I, and I've never really said it in, in a public setting because you don't want people to think that, oh, well, Joe from This Is Hardcore is not happy with it. It's like, no, I'm happy because people are happy, but the way that I make people happy is different because people have to be in the room and there's a lot of elements to make other people happy. And that's, that's sometimes make us as the promoters and the people making all the gears spin at the right times, not as happy. 
And I mean, I think if I didn't have the staff that I have and the people that I pulled into my corner, I, I, I it would have fell apart years ago. So I, I really just appreciate the honesty. And the biggest thing that I, I wanted to do besides not ask people about their new records was I didn't want to be like a nineties hardcore zine yeah. where I asked the most dramatic question for this. Oh my God. He told the story. I mean, if, if you're going to like a uh, rich hall, the previous podcast had said mm-hmm. that someone got stabbed and he was named names and it wasn't yeah. like a ratting thing. He's like, Hey, this guy got stabbed. Yeah. So like when you brought up your thing, I'm like, well, we haven't had, I mean, it, we've already discussed this kind of thing happening at hardcore. And I think yeah. that anyone who had grown up in it understands that that's a, that's a part of the culture. It's not the part of the culture we're most happy with. And as promoters, you know, we are not omnipotent. We may see like you, you have brought up knowing who's the troublemakers and having to, yeah. you know, deal with them and discipline them. We cannot control every aspect of everything. There's just sometimes where shit's going to hit the fan. It's how we react. That's going to save the day. Not so much as you didn't stop it. Yeah. I can't stop people from doing this. So, Oh yeah, that's uh, that's the, the 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 you know again. I've seen there's been some fights at Blackthorn. They were nothing compared to the fights we have at Castle Lights. And me and John would be like, eh, that was a big ball of nothing. The next day, uh, John or Mike or whoever's like, you on the online? Why? Uh, I don't know if you want to see this. What is it? Somebody bashing us or whatever. Not me personally, but or the, the club or whatever about this big brawl that broke out and blah blah blah. And we're like, there was nothing. I saw it, it was like a dust up. And then like, oh, and then you have the, the people chime in. I don't. I'm, I'll never go to that club. Sounds dangerous. I, I'm not about that. And all these people chiming in. I'm like, oh god. I was like, and and like we used to even say, imagine this was out uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram when Castle Heights was around. I'm uh-huh. like, no, I could I couldn't imagine it. I was like, it just. And obviously, you're you know this is hardcore is, is become this iconic thing. And I even say to myself, you know, as much as you would, you have admiration, respect for me, I have, uh, let me just say, and needless to say, but I say it absolutely publicly. Uh, I have that much uh, and more uh, admiration, respect for you. Cause quite honestly, Joe, out of everything I've done, I don't know if I could do with this is hardcore. Now I'm going to undertake the castle lights thing. It's my friend. I could do it. It's a, it's a one-time thing though. It's a one-shot deal. And it's in two years. I've never undertook anything like this, but I think I'm ready for it. But I know you do this thing every year. It takes up your whole weekend. Bands are coming from all across the way and across country and continent. And uh, I mean, you've done it now. How many, this is hardcore have there been total so far? This would have been our 15th. We started. 15th, in th- wow. It started in 2006. Amazing. So. Amazing. And it's gotten bigger every year. And again, it's, it's probably one of the most known things in the States as far as a hardcore fest goes. And uh, again, I even said to myself, how do you, and I watched the footage and the craziness and, and the hard dancing. It's crazy. It reminds me of uh, again, the, the glory days of castle Heights um, because quite honestly, Joe, the dancing in Queens isn't really like that anymore. It's kind of softened a bit over the years, uh, but I watched this as hardcore clips and I watch friends bands of mine on stage and I've seen you perform too. And it brings me back to working those shows and, and seeing that stuff, but this is on so much a grander scale and it's a fest and an all day and night event. And it takes up the whole weekend. And I, I, my hat's off to you for doing that because as knowledgeable as I am, and I'd be an asset to be involved in a team of that, but I kind of, and I'm glad that you're saying, Hey man, it's me, but I have the great people I work with. Yeah. You need that great team behind you. Cause not one man can undertake that, let alone like one big show, but uh, dealing with all the bands that you deal with, it's amazing uh, production and the talent that I see on the roster is just unbelievable. So I've been uh, more than impressed with those lineups over the years. I've always wanted to go to one. And I know Dave was like, you got to come with me outside. 
that. So I promise Dave, and you will see my face there at one upcoming sooner than later. Cause you know, I'm getting up there. I got, <laughs> I got, I got to hold you. I'm going to hold you to that. You're going to hold me to that. I got to go sooner than later. And I think it would be a kick to uh, go there. And, and I would, uh, see some old suspects and they'll probably see like a ghost from the past, like castle Heights. I could already, even Dave's like, yeah, if you go there, I guarantee a lot of people are going to know who you are. I go, well, it's not really about that. I said, but it would be a kick to see uh, like uh, Scott from Tarot or anybody who's on the bill. I haven't seen in years. I mean, I've seen AF recently. I've seen sick of it all recently. Um, uh, some of the bigger bands, but some of the, the more mid-level bands and over the years, uh, I haven't seen a death threat. I haven't seen Aaron in years. I haven't seen so many of these dudes in 10, 15 years, bro. So be a kick and, and i look at the lineup i'm like i know those guys i know those guys i know those guys so it's it'll be a thrill for me and i promise david i'm promising you on the air uh the next one the, the, I, I would say in 2021 i'd like to make the venture out for next year and knock on wood if we, you know want to close it out with the covid stuff uh hopefully things will be back on track uh in 2021 i mean is that your plan too uh, my plan is uh you know i'm planning 2021 getting some sort of green light to proceed ahead with my bookings and, and start doing this thing again. I've, I've, I've gotten accustomed to the fact that we're done for the rest of the year. We won't even have a local show at this point uh, for the rest of 2020, but I'm gearing up for January and on uh, vaccine or not. I'm hoping we open up again. And if there's parameters and um, we got to wear a mask or whatever we got to do, but we got to get back in action sooner than later. Cause again, I'm, I've never seen anything like this and uh, it's going to be almost one full year before we get back in action again. No, I'm in the same exact boat. In fact, the initial plan had been that Philadelphia was going to go green sometime in early July. Mm -hmm. And I had worked at a deal to go to a skate park that uh, would have easily been able to do an outside situation. And the, the time and place to start promoting was not at the time with all the social media stuff. Yeah. And then the secondary thing was that our city had actually gone back out of a green status. So, even with an outside situation without the immediate contamination uh, threat, it was just not the right move. And so what we had planned to do was push it to the fall and midsummer we were looking at it. And I'm like, well, we're not going to do this. And then I am now working with an early November date to do a one day live stream thing with sound talent, sound talent media uh, slap shots going to do 35 years. They, they did their oh, uh, wow. crazy video got a a couple really awesome bands from the now and it's just going to be something cool it's not live and i think that people will either lock in and check it out or they won't but i i didn't want to go with nothing obviously i'd much rather be at a show somewhere yeah um the way i look at covid is that i do not want anybody to risk themselves or feel guilted if we did something and they weren't a part of it. And I, yeah. and I've, I, I work in construction. I haven't missed much work because oh, God, we have man. been insanely busy, but we're also precautious. And I've worked from nuclear plants to bridges and every health situation is different there, but I've yet knock on wood. I've yet to yeah. actually have any kind of sickness that would make me even want to uh, get tested. So my feelings is that in the end of February is when Philadelphia says that they were going to uh, look again at the capacity laws. And there is an interesting thing in Pennsylvania because the governor had just found out that his uh, measures were considered not uh, unconstitutional by a federal judge. Mm -hmm. But I I believe that it won't be till 2021 that people are either going to say, Hey, we're done. We're going to come back out. Cause I, I, I mean, 
I don't think people are going to want to rerun another year where everybody's not doing what they want to do. No, I don't think, I don't think anybody, I, it's not, it's not healthy in itself in that, in the, in the aspect of the, uh, again, um, staying home doesn't, and just being around certain group of people doesn't build up your immunities to other thing. I think there's different doctors and scientists, and I've looked at a lot of different things from different spectrums, me being in that zone of over 50, I have to be careful myself, uh, high blood pressure and heart disease runs in my family. Uh, my father was one of the things that killed him I'm, I'm on top of smoking and esophageal cancer. Uh, Sorry to hear so, that. Yeah, so I got to be uh, careful myself because I don't think I'm 52, Joe. Uh, I, <laughs> to me, I probably sound 32. I might look 42, but I'm 52, and sometimes I feel 82. But uh, I, I forget sometimes that I'm 52 until I uh, see uh, I got to use some just for men today. Uh, the gray is, is shining through. So I sometimes forget, oh, shit, I'm in that zone that I have to almost be reminded. Well, you got to be careful, too, Kev. You're over 50. So, again, and I felt knock on wood, too. Uh, okay. I haven't been sick, uh, since this thing happened. Uh, I live by myself, uh, right now, currently, uh, from, a relationship situation, me and my girl broke up a while ago, uh, long-term relationships. So I'm living by myself, uh, private house, first floor. I rent out in, uh, fresh meadows, Queens, been here for years and no one really comes in or out of here and stuff. So I've been managing to keep, uh, healthy. Um, but of course, again, you gotta be careful. And then, you know, your lips to God's ears, you brag about, oh, I'm fine. Then tomorrow I'm waking up, I'm hacking my brains out, uh, God forbid. But so again, I gotta be careful just from age and stuff like that. So, um, but I'm itching to get back and there's that double-edged side. And I've talked about this on lucky 13 podcast. Cause we basically talk about the New York scene and stuff. We don't talk about hardcore. We talk about just the music landscape. And if we're going to come back and I know that all club workers are, are again, uh, people are running out of money. They're running out of patience. They're running out of, uh, uh, time and even wondering, should I even stay in this business anymore? A couple of club owners. I know I'm not going to name them. They'll announce it themselves. I have, uh, total, uh, you know, intel of several clubs that'll be announcing their closing in the next couple of weeks, and people are going to be pretty surprised. Uh, nobody I'm involved with, but there's some clubs that you might be shocked to hear. But it doesn't shock me because there's nothing coming in, and there's everything going out. And how are you going to how are you going to survive? So again, I'd love to go back. I want to go back under you know, precaution and, and be careful and safe. But I won't kid you, Joe, there's times where I'm like, fuck this COVID. I've had my tantrums over it behind closed doors, punching walls, frustrated. Uh, because again, uh, I had such plans that were just taken out of the mix for this year. And, uh, you know, I lost about, uh, 47 show dates so again uh, and i laugh because i gotta laugh i don't laugh i'll cry yeah, you know if, you don't, I mean? if you don't laugh about it you're gonna kick yourself and you're i think you're gonna cry 47 working dates bro and all the money and everything and uh, again I, I mean i uh you know not, not to boohoo or anything about it but again i've done what i've had to do and from you know uh the, the, you know, almost depleting my savings. I'm sure a lot of people listening to the show are shaking their heads saying, yeah, me too, are selling shit that I never wanted to sell, collectibles that I thought I'd have forever. That now, you know, paying the bills is first and foremost. And I never, you know, you prepare for a rainy day, Joe, but I never prepared for this fucking kind of yeah, I never prepared for seven, rainy that's, months. Yeah, seven Six, months of rainy months. Seven months, dude. I mean, most people have enough in the bank to cover two, three months. They lose their job or something happens, their ass out. This kind of thing, I I got to say, and sometimes I'm mad at myself for not being more prepared, but I say to myself, who would have ever predicted a fucking worldwide pandemic? I can promise you sitting around the club table when we're planning shows that no one said, 
what do you think if we had a pandemic, you know, no one ever brought that up in the club business, you know? No. So again, and, and you know, too, Joe, let's be honest, the live music entertainment and the club business and stuff, live entertainment are the last in line. The, 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 the government officials, the city officials see us as the last, the last people to deal with everything else just open went last. Would they just, we're not as important as everybody else. No. And I think the hardest thing for me to kind of visualize is, Working, going to a Lowe's, going to a Walmart, going mm -hmm. to Targets, going to Home Depots, and it's just packed. And I'm like, so these places can be packed, but yeah. and, and I have to bite my tongue mm -hmm. and say that. And it was specifically for things like you said, I have guys that I worked with that are great who are like, hey, my wife is immunocompromised. I'm not coming to work. And you respect them. You know, like yeah, yeah. every everyone's situation is a little different. And I don't and I, and I choose to not condemn someone if they if they go all in, I don't really have a lot of friends that are completely like anti-max maskers and that kind sure. of crazy shit yeah. because we do live in a, in a city. But the thing for me is one way or the other in some live form, there will be a, this is hardcore 2021. I pray to God. Great. It's not a drive-in theater thing, but oh, uh, uh, Guar's doing one. Uh, Cypress Hill just did one. So and, uh, Mark from MAD was like, you should, it told me months. And I thought he was out of his mind. He's like, you should try drive-in theaters. We're doing this now. And here we are where Guar's Guar, doing a drive-in show. Um, you, you, had given, you had paid me a great compliment regarding this hardcore. And as someone whose shows were definitely an inspiration, I, I just wanted to say thank you, man. Like, uh, hard, This is hardcore is my ability to kind of give a bullhorn to a lot of different aspects of hardcore, whether it's the turning point stuff that I fell in love with as a kid to yeah. being at the castle shows. And, and I want the world to see all the different little spots of hardcore. Cause it's more like a kaleidoscope than this is one vision. And, and that's what I get to do with this is hardcore. So hearing that you're, that you're aware of it and that you saw videos, this makes me very fucking happy because you had given us. And in return, this is my return favorite. Everybody else like, Hey, this is the weekend where we get to all get together. And one of the things I tell everybody who's spoken more, like you said, like, I got to get down there. I don't have many friends who go down one time and go, yeah. that was cool. Usually like, dude, I got to come back next year because there's another aspect to it. It becomes a family reunion where like, I mean, yeah. I have a lot of the guys you mentioned. I mean, Phil's been down to the fest. Uh, Glenn is there every year hanging out. Like you see that Afro and so many back hangout pictures, like, the one thing I didn't want to do was create a fest where hardcore people couldn't hang out with each other right. and see old friends. And I mean, I have a picture of, I, I, it's never been done before to my knowledge, but we had a really like last minute, I, I bullied about 80 something people. They're like if you're from Philly hardcore, get a fucking picture. <laughs> and I think it's so cool because it's so many different generations. Like the guys, when I was 15 years old, you know, in pictures with kids who are 17 years old, like, and they're going to shows for the first year. I wanted to give back. So I'm, I'm glad that you saw it because I mean, you gave us so much at that time, this entire podcast was hopefully uh, for people listening, just so you see that there was more to castle Heights than uh, an aesthetic or a vibe that you, that you're drawing from because you don't have the context. This Kevin, Kevin was the steward of this entire thing. And, whether he was booking metal shows or whether he's booking hardcore shows, whether you're from New York city or whether you're from Philadelphia, you were treated the exact same way. And I tell people this all the time. The threat of violence was an excitement thing. 
It wasn't a fact. It was just there as a possibility, but it wasn't the mainstay. The mainstay was the friendships. The mainstay was the bands. And I mean, and anytime like one of the, the great castle bands was up there, whether it was Billy Club, EGH, Irate, you know, you, you knew you were there for a show that was going to be off the fucking chain. Yeah. And so many people would travel down to it. I mean, you anywhere from Long Island, all the way through New England, we were coming up from Philly and, and it was a special place. And I'm so happy that you're able to give us the opportunity to harness that. Um, we're at three hours. So I want oh, yeah, to really, no, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 this is awesome. Oh, this no, is why I wanted, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. But I want to, I wanted you to just, uh, let us know how people can get in touch with you because obviously I don't know how many hardcore kids ever thought to ask Kevin Scadato something, you know, like ask the man, like how would someone reach out and uh, get, get in touch with you and uh, shout out all your social media so people can get in touch, man. Sure. I mean, if you want anybody can get in touch with me, obviously on Facebook, I use my real last name, which is Scandato. It's not castle, but um, Kevin Scandato on Facebook. Uh, you could find me there. Just uh, you'll find a bunch of Scandados there. I'd be the Kevin, uh, you know, along with Mark. You shut down everybody else. So real, uh, real name on Facebook. Just look up Kevin Scandado. You can find me there on Twitter. I use Kev Castle. I'm Kev Z Castle. Uh, don't ask me why Z, because there's a bunch of Kev Castle. I had to separate myself. So the Kev uh, Z Castle, that would be me. Um, and uh, I don't have an Instagram. Well, I'm on Instagram, but not really. Uh, but anybody wants to hit me up, you can hit me up on Messenger on Facebook. Hit me up on Messenger on Twitter. And I get back to everybody, whether it's in a band or you inquire about the wrestling show or or uh, whatever, or you just want to follow me on Twitter or, or friend me on Facebook. I'm always open to uh, meeting new people. I might know you from back in the day and you're hearing me for, wow, I haven't seen this guy in years and I haven't seen you in years. Hit me up. Uh, I always get back to everybody right away. So uh, I won't leave you hanging. If you hit me up, I will get back to you on Facebook or Twitter Messenger. Best way to reach me. And uh, obviously uh, for, uh, you know, I'll be as far as, uh, again, it's too early to announce uh, the Castle Heights thing. Uh, if any band who hears this is from back in the day and is like, oh, I'm part of Castle Heights, maybe I can get in on this, hit me up. Like I said, we're doing pre-planning now. I'm going to reach out to all the bands uh, directly. Uh, if people want to hit me up from back in the day, if you have some sort of uh, uh, you know, part of the legacy of Castle Heights, you have a lineage with us and, and a history, feel free to hit me up. I, again, I'm not uh, ruling anything out. Uh, I'm open to ideas and it's going to be a three day thing. We might have more than enough room for certain bands. Let me see what I can do. I got to see how we're going to run this right now. I'm just compiling information, putting things together and we're, we're processing everything. Uh, again, we're, we're not setting anything in stone on a venue in a particular date. We do know it's going to be in early, late September or early October of 2022 will be the Castle Lights reunion. That is definite. Uh, the, the date, and the year is definite. Um, I, I'm probably it's going to be the first week of October, and uh, it'll be a three day thing, and we'll see where we're at at that point. Because I'm sure some clubs are not going to make it, unfortunately, and some clubs will sprout up. Uh, and we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm I, I, my, I, my aspirations for this, Joe. Obviously, I don't think it'll be as big as uh, this is hardcore, but I think it'll be. I think it'll be. Uh, big enough. And to me, if uh, 500 people showed up, I'd be happy with that. And people tell me 500, 1500, 2000. I'm like, all right, let's, we can think big, but I, I'd be happy, Joe, to be honest with you, you had 200 friends there. You know what I mean? So I'm not doing it for certainly not doing it for money, but I I'm doing it to celebrate uh, the legacy of Castle Lights. I think it deserves it. I think a 10 year run is respectable. And while all the old heads are still kicking around, you know, again, Joe, knock on wood, because again, none of us are getting any younger and you don't know where life is going to take any. And I think you have to 
to do these things and, and, and uh, do them sooner than later, because you can't just assume everything, you know, that we're all going to be here, God willing. And I want uh, everyone who was around is still around to enjoy it and be happy and healthy. And hopefully by then we could be looking back at COVID and going, shit, remember 2020, dude, two years ago, that was fucked up. And we can be talking in 2021, 22 about, Wow, 2020. Let's just put that in the rearview mirror, because uh, I really hope for the best. And I, I and everybody who's a club worker and uh, who's out there who's like hearing this and agreeing, saying, "Yeah, man, I, I, you know, I hope shows come back. Shows will come back. We'll, 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 it'll come back, and we'll have shows like normal, like we used to. And I believe next year at this time we'll be back in full swing. And I, I'd even like to say, Joe, I'll come back a year from now if you'll have me, and uh, hopefully we could be talking about the year that was and what we're doing now, and things are better. You know what I mean? No, I would love to have you back on here. And I absolutely agree that by this time next year, we will be up and running. And I think that the world needs that. And I hope that we can just put 2020 behind us. And I don't think that too many people are really going to want to sit here and go back and, oh, 2020, because really, what did we really get done? One of the one of the things that I think about the Castle 20 year thing is that there are already people that are no longer with us. And something yeah. that as I as I look at these old show pics from Instagram, every picture has a friends who have passed away and it's, oh, a hard, yeah, yeah. and it's a hard thing to think about that time without that person there. And then, you, you know, um, so I look forward to that. I also want you to be able to have a staff that will allow you to actually mingle and hang. So you're not stuck over the uh, minutia <laughs> and I'll throw my hat in the ring and say, if you need anything day of, I don't care if it's just running water on stage, just so that way you can enjoy being around the people that you put together, I'm willing to do that just so that way. I, I appreciate that, Joe. I know I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to staff it right. And I think I'm going to have to even turn people away. It's like I already have my word got out, just trickled out. And I got hit up by not only the usual suspects, but even people who uh, never even been to Castle Heights and want to be involved. And I'm like, just to put the idea out. And so I officially announced it here, but I spread it out to a couple of people on the phone that I wanted to do it. And I guess they passed it on to people. And I got about eight emails yesterday saying, when's this Castle Heights thing? I'm like, who the fuck could have told you? So I'm like, I'm like, I only told two people, but I, I, so I told Dave, I was going to announce it tonight. And, uh, he's like, yeah, I mean the date and the year, uh, the, definitely the, that month and the time frame. that's what's going to happen. And the venue and the bands will be announced. But again, uh, I can promise everybody that the, the people who belong on that show will be on that show that I can promise you, you know, nah, this, this, is, you, this is just so exciting to think yeah. about. And I just really appreciate your time and I really appreciate the effort that you put out. And there's a lot of the things that, uh, you had said here that I had not had someone from the booking shows perspective and your time in as an experience is going to definitely show a lot of these younger bands and also the promoters just how to kick it in the second gear. And I just really appreciate your time, Kevin. Um, if you ever need anything for me, obviously, and uh, I'd love to have you back next year and we'll be talking about a ton of other stuff because we're not going to be saying, Oh, this COVID might be another year. Oh, God, no, I hope not. 2021 <laughs> is going to be the year that we make up for the year that everybody had the biggest plans. Yeah. I mean, again, I think, uh, you know, listen, and, and anybody who's, uh, again, and I get it. If you're a performer, you're a band, not just the person who works at clubs or book shows is bands who a lot of depression going around now. A lot of people really, not knowing what to do with themselves because such an uncertainty. And I don't think in our lifetime we've ever seen uncertainty and believe me, it doesn't get any better because I'm older. And uh, you know, it's funny, Joe, when this happened, 
you know, I got more calls in the end of March, beginning of April from people at clubs, notable clubs, uh, people who are bigger deals in this business than I am. But they called me to ask me, what do I think? What do you think we should do? What's going to happen? And I said, I'll be honest with you guys. I've never been through anything like this before. Your guess is good. You know, and I appreciate it because I've been in the game 27 years consistently. And uh, I've seen, you know, Hurricane Sam. I've been through a lot of things, 9-11, the whole thing. But nothing like this has ever happened. I don't know what to tell you. And if I can make you feel any better saying, I do believe our industry will come back. Don't give up. Hang in there. That's the best thing I can tell you. But I was, if some people called me that was just like, yeah, I just want to pick your brain about what do you think is going to be with this thing? Like, how long do you think this is going to go on? Who's going to make it? Who's not? Like, I, I don't, you know, them, some people even saying, I don't know if I could pay rent on a space I'm not going to use. Like, what are you guys doing over there? And I would tell them, I was like, you know, we're hanging in there. And, and I know Blackthorn is hanging in there. Lucky 13 is hanging in there. I'm in, very involved with the owners. I know the intricate details of what's going on. But I do know that it's a struggle. And I do know that uh, they waived evictions for places here in New York till January. So no one could be kicked out of their space. But a lot of back rent is going to be owed, dude. And it's thousands of dollars. And I don't know what certain people are going to do. And Joe, that's what I'm saying. I can bitch all day long, but I'm glad I'm not in the owner's seat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, you know, we can walk away and go do something else, you know, as much as I can bitch and I'm not happy and blah, blah, blah. I'm not sitting in that owner's chair where he's on the hook for all this stuff. I, I could be a counsel and I could be the consigliere, but it's not on me to uh, pay that tab at the end of the day. And I, and I, that's what, again, I can understand it from the band's perspective and I can understand it from the owner's perspective. There's a lot of stuff on both sides of the story that sometimes the other side doesn't care to know or just wants to pretend doesn't exist. In other words, we you know we all got problems and we all got dilemmas to deal with in this situation. I see bands breaking up. I see bands calling it a day. Uh, my brother, Mike was telling me about some notable bands who are going to hang it up. Uh, you know, um, and I'm like, wow, uh, I'm I, listen, six months is a long time, but again, um, I think everyone's got to hang in there. If, uh, you have a solid foundation, you, you are, uh, put a lot of stuff, time into stuff. I would not give up. Uh, listen, it's hard for me to, to carry on like this and everyone's living check to check, hand to mouth, depending on, uh, you know, checks uh, from unemployment insurance. And that's that clock is running out for a lot of people too. It's a scary time, but I think if people hold out, I think you're right. We, we can get through this and, uh, I think there will be a scene. I think show business will return. I just don't know when. Uh, I would say this year is a wash, but I'm hoping for the new year. And 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 again, man, hopefully to have a vaccine. And uh, I think this thing's always going to be around, Joe. That the whole thing is, and we have to worry about people getting everyone getting vaccines and getting vaccinated. Uh, it's it's again, man. It's nothing we bargain for, or what we plan for, man. And um, you know, again, uh, we just got to hang in there and, and see what happens. And uh, uh, again, uh, I, I'll pledge my 100%. I will be here a year from now, even before in 2021, you have me on before, and hopefully we can talk about, you know, well, we're back up and running and we can talk about our new things and shows upcoming and, and, uh, you know, I'll plan to, and again, I'll be, uh, giving me uh, my plans about going to this is hardcore in July. So, uh, I, I hope it happens uh, when it's supposed to, and I'll be there, you know? No, I hope so as well. And I'll definitely have you back on and we'll be talking about, your new adventures in lucky 13 and wherever else. Um, just thank you for being on the show. Thank you Thanks, for being man. the person who can articulate and really explain what was going on. And from your perspective, because there, there's something to be said about the person who had to corral all these people into one place. That's and big, I could, uh, there, yeah. there's, there's probably going to be some in the coming weeks, some different castle guys on here. Cause I like to kind of tie everything in, but it really had to start with you. So just thank you for being on the show and I'm definitely going to have you back 
And if uh, you got anything, last words, let me know. And uh, just, dude, thank you for everything. No, thank you, Joe, again. And I assume you'll be having some of the band guys on. Uh, give them my best. And I probably shouted them out here. Let's see if they put me over as much as I put them over. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll I'll, uh, I'll know who's upcoming. You can tell me off the show who you got coming up and uh, I'll be tuning in. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. And shout out to everybody from the, from the past who supported everybody in Philly, everybody in New York and Jersey and the neighboring States and Boston, all in the Northeast, um, you know, and all over the, the world really, uh, because when it was said and done, we had bands from Japan, bands from Singapore. And it's just, it was a great time. And uh, I wish we could bring it back again. Again, I can't recreate history, but what I could do is try and uh, bring back some of the, the methods and some of the, uh, the passion and, and hopefully, you know, those guys, it has, it has to, also be there with the bands too the bands have to want to uh uh you know want it as much as we do and you can build you know the scene is what it is right now but uh those days uh from back in the day are, are great memories for me and i always cherish them and uh, i never get tired of talking about them and uh thank you again for having me on and i'll be tuning in for uh, all the upcoming podcasts i really enjoyed this and much uh, success with everything you got coming up bro no thank you so much man um check out kevin on twitter and on facebook and We'll be putting anything that Kevin has going on up on our website as he progresses. So can't wait to see everybody. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. Peace. If you are still listening, I absolutely thank you. I know this was a very long episode, but Kevin speaks so effortlessly. And the names and places and the entire thing just for me was a blast to do and he's probably one of the most articulate and well-spoken guys in the history of New York hardcore and probably hardcore in general. I really look forward to what he builds off of the 20 year celebration of Castle Heights and we will continue on all our social media networks to promote this as he goes on and I certainly look to have him back as he begins to promote this one. For me, This is someone who absolutely set a standard that influenced so much of what I began to do in the early 2000s as I was able to have a more steady stream of shows and different bands were able to start coming up and fostering good relationships with the local bands so that way they could lean on me for help as they began to navigate their own successes beyond Philadelphia is something that I learned from him. And it definitely helped myself as well as some of the early days of bands like Blacklisted, even Letdown. I mean, and it still goes today with Year of the Knife. This is all stuff that I learned from him. And I hope that you take the time to glean what information you can from him because it's completely invaluable. This is Hardcore Podcast. As you're listening to it now, continue to listen on your channel. Obviously, we are going to be releasing these every week. I am still not really sure the whole Patreon thing. So people brought it up. I don't, someone else said, hey, you should make some t shirts. I don't know if there's even someone walking around with a podcast t shirt. Right now, it's more important for me to continue to disseminate the information, continue to talk to some old friends and meet new ones, and really just break down just stories and glean information that could be used and just good lessons that come from the wealth of experience that these people have put out. Next week, 
is once again someone who I have considered one of my closest friends, Richie Crutch, Richie Mancuso of Wisdom and Chains. And he is going to give us the beginning days of Crutch and the beginning of his own story in hardcore. And a lot of local people like some of the stories. And even if you're not local, this is a not only a history lesson, but this is a culture lesson. This is how she got started in the very early 90s. And I hope you guys enjoy it. Thanks for sticking through. Talk to you next week. TIHCpodcast.com. I do answer and try to get to all the comments and the messages, be it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. This is Hardcore. We are just at This is Hardcore on Facebook. We are at TIHC Fest on Twitter. And This is Hardcore Fest on Instagram. My personal channels, you can get me at The Joe Hardcore on IG and The Joe Hardcore on Twitter. I remembered it this time. And yes, I reply. And I really, 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 really enjoy hearing what you guys got from the episodes and just hearing old friends check in and tell me that they listen is awesome. And it's inspiring and motivating. And I'm glad that I'm not just talking into the stupid microphone and it's just going into the abyss of the internet. So thank you and see you next week.